What's up, Kurt and Theories of Everything podcast. I hope you enjoy this conversation with me and Kurt Chai Mungle. Kurt is a big inspiration for me. I love his show. I am uh, a religious watcher of it. And uh, I think he goes deeper than just about anybody else with uh, some of the top thinkers in the world. And so it was an honor for me to interview him. This was supposed to come out actually on American Alchemy around a year ago, but I took uh, a nine month break or something like that. Bad timing on my part. So this is a lost interview, uh, but it's an excellent conversation. I hope you enjoy it. It was an honor to, to speak to Kurt and comment below if you want more conversations like this. All right. Kurt Jaimungle, thank you for coming. This has been a long time coming because I'm a huge fan of your show. And the way I like to describe your show to friends of mine uh, is basically, I, I think you are a deeper, smarter version of Lex Friedman. <laughs> I think I love Lex. No, no offense to him. I think he's awesome. But in many ways, he's got the kind of... Uh, Larry King kind of audience surrogate thing going on where he like doesn't have any context going into the interview. He asks super basic questions and then sort of peripatetically like gains context through the interview. You come in um, like knowing everything about the person's ideas and you ask insanely good questions that like surprise the guests often at the level of depth. And so, I, yeah, it's 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 a blast. That, that's uh, extremely, extremely <laughs> kind. Thank you so much. Of course, yeah. yeah the, the goal is, if you've watched every interview with this guest and you watch it on Toe, I want Toe to be the best one of all the interviews or the deepest one, deepest yep. and most technical. Yeah. Yeah, you do. You you ask super technical. It's 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 fantastic. If you if you want to get to the core of the person's work. I think it's it's probably the best like initial primer you could ever ask for. It's like that or like some super dense research paper. Yeah, and like yeah. I would start with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's 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 flattering. I forget who it was, but there's some other guest who said that when they want to learn about one of the guests on the the toe platform, they'll just go to toe first mm. because there's they said that when they're doing their research process, they'll look at a toe episode because they may have to dig through, maybe this is irrelevant now because there's chat GPT, but if they wanted to find out an answer about mm -hmm. what does this guest think about so-and-so, yeah. they'll find it on toe rather than, and looking through the timestamps rather than going through the yeah. papers. I mean, I'd rather do that than chat GPT, so. <laughs> what, do you think, what do you think about chat GPT? Overhyped, um, underhyped? I think it's overhyped. I think we're at like 97, 98% Turing passable, you know, NLP AI like a few years ago. And I think now we're at a hundred percent and like the difference between a hundred percent and 97, 98% is, is dramatic in its public reception, but is not represent any sort of stepwise backend change in like how the thing works. Mm -hmm. And, and I think about like, you know, Winograd schemas or like things that like break AI traditionally where like, you know, AI doesn't understand still, in my opinion, semantic context. And like, I think the pattern matching just got better where like it now seems like it understands. It's like as if uh -huh. semantic context understanding, but I don't think it understands semantic context. And then I think about all the hype around like we can have material science breakthroughs with this stuff. It's like, no, you can't get out of here. That's like so far off, like all this sort of multimodal stuff, you know, uh, anything that's interdomain, I think, is going to be super tough for AI. I think we're in a complete hype cycle bubble. But well, yeah, what do you think? I think we're completely underhyping it. Wow! Yeah. Well, yeah. let's so, go. What do you think? So, but, yeah. I, but we may follow different yeah. different channels. So if you follow the popular media, mm -hmm. then yes, it's mm -hmm. overhyped. Mm -hmm. But 
yeah. if you follow more of the media that is is educated, I'm going to put that in quotations. Yep. Then I'll then they'll underhype it. Interesting. I don't know why, but anyway, I see it much like electricity, where in the beginning, Faraday mm -hmm. was just playing around with electricity, and people were like, "That's a magic trick." Like they didn't okay. even see the potential of what it could be. And even when Edison right. put these through lines, they're like, "Oh, now we can light our homes." And like now we can light our homes. That's it. Yeah. That's all you think about. Yeah. So. So I, I think it's completely underhyped. Interesting. And mid-journey, like not just chat GPT, but mid-journey. Yep. And not just G chat GPT, but there's GPT-3. Yep. And then there's integrating it with the web, which is Bing. Mm -hmm. And it constantly gets underpowered, underpowered. Yep. And by the way, if you speak to some of the people who worked on, who used chat GPT in its beta days, as well as the early days when it was released, yep. they say it was vastly, vastly more powerful. Like the code would work almost every single time. Yeah. And then because... They're worried about safety issues and also scalability. Maybe they had to reduce the amount of power that each user was given. Yeah. Then it becomes less and less accurate. So the technology is there. The, the technology is there. It's only growing. And it's just, I love the, the CEO of Microsoft. Yeah. It's like there was the computer era. And yeah. there was the internet era. And now we're at the AI era. Yep. And I think last year we hit this inflection point. We're at the yeah. AI era. Interesting. Okay. I think it's going to displace a lot of white collar work. So I think like legal, yeah. accounting, yeah. things where you're sort of running loops online. Yeah, and data entry. And data data entry. For instance, yeah. on Bing, on, on the C, the Microsoft presentation, the Microsoft mm. presentation, fascinating. Where yeah. They're like, okay, look at this PDF, which is, I don't know, the company Guess, let's say Guess, the yeah. jeans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they're like, okay, let's, ask it, can you summarize this document for me? And then it does it in terms of the, the projections of the financial statements and so on that they had in the, the PDF. Mm -hmm. And then, so that's all already fascinating. And then they're like, can you compare this to Lululemon's? And then it does a chart. And then you're like, yeah, think about yeah, how yeah. much work that would have taken. So totally. if I wanted to do that, I would get someone on Fiverr that would take a few back and forths yeah. and then they wouldn't do it properly and it would take a couple of days and it would cost money. Totally. And now I can do it in, in just like, 45 seconds? Yep. Oh my gosh. So I use, I've used Midjourney for, not just for art for the, mm -hmm. for the Toe channel, but for idea generation. Mm. So for instance, oh, cool. I have this idea for one year, I've had this idea of a poster, like a beautiful metal painted poster that's fairly large. Yeah. That's like a tree of life and it has different toes, like yeah. the symbols of toes and how they're related. Oh, so this, this one's a subset of this one. This one is like SU2 is integrated into SU4 or yeah. it goes into spin 10 and so on. Like yeah. The petit salon models and so on mm -hmm. and, the, and the nodes and the graphs and mm -hmm. sorry, the edges and the nodes. Mm -hmm. And I've looked online for months and months and not, not dedicating my entire time, but just intermittently looking online for months and months like oh do do i like this artist do i like this one okay let me take that yeah it's not quite it not quite it soon as mid-journey came out yeah. i'm like here's what i'm looking for and then it generates what is exceeds my expectations mm. and then i'm like oh i never thought that it came up with some variation I'm like yeah. oh, i never thought that it could be on the root of the tree below okay let me play uh, with this. that's cool and then i also had this idea for a video game uh -huh. for quite some time maybe like 10 years now yeah just in the back of my mind. What's a game? It's a 2D game, pixel art game. And I have this idea for the art style, but then also I'm like, okay, so chat, G sorry, mid journey, generate these for me. Yeah. Then I'm like, oh, that's cool. So they generated a person beside a car in a town. I'm like, oh, I never even thought about exploring a town at night. Oh, maybe rain can be a mechanic or maybe nighttime and the haze can be a mechanic. Okay, yeah. let me play around with that. Then I'm like, oh, I see that. So I use it as like a, a person you would spitball off of. 
Ah, yeah. And same with yeah. ChatGPT. And so it's just... It's, just it's like an extended mind. Yeah, but, but it's also super dangerous. Yeah. So for instance, I ask it, can you explain this concept to me? Yeah. And then it just does. And then I'm like, can you explain it in a different way? And then it does. Yeah. And then now when I'm asking someone, hey, can you explain that? Then I'm like, just waiting, like yeah. loading the ChatGPT. I'm like, I would see everything in chat. I could read that much quicker than it's coming out of your mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah, they would yeah. explain it better. And I'm like, oh my, I'm getting so bored with this person. Right. So that's not great. Wow. Yeah, it's like and making... And it's just the first iteration. So right. it's going to be horrible it's for the next generation because it's already just stuck like on the Making like human interaction yes. vestigial. Or you could say it's making the informational aspect, the informational transfer aspects of uh, yes. interrelations sort of vestigial. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, the energy you know, of people's yeah. relationships yeah. like will matter more in some ways because maybe there's some human ineffable kind of aspect that you, you can't get from chat GPT now yeah. or maybe even ever. So John Verveke, do you know John Verveke? Yeah, I know who he is. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. he talks about meaning these, structure. Right, yeah. that there's these four P's of knowledge or yeah. four P's of truth. Yeah. So one is propositional. That's what chat GPT is. That's what it is when you're working with the computer's explicit statements like uh -huh. math is propositional. Uh -huh. Then there's other forms like perspectival, what it's like to have a certain perspective. Uh -huh. And then participatory, like we're participating in a dialogue and yeah. it's almost like a dance. Yeah. And then there's procedural, so movement. So uh -huh. when you drive a car, there's a knowledge to it. Grabbing a, a ball, there's a knowledge to it. Uh -huh. But it's not explicitly stated, it's in your muscles. Uh -huh. It's embodied. Uh -huh. So he's saying that there's that what's happened in the meaning, our lack of meaning in our culture is that we started to overvalue the propositional and undervalue these. And it started since like the year, since thousands of years ago. Mm -hmm. And different developments, like Peterson's answer to the meaning crisis has to do with Jung and the fall of Adam and Eve and so on. And, uh -huh. and John Verveke's like, oh, actually it's because of the invention of vowels and spaces. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, how the heck does that have anything to do with the meaning crisis? He's like, because now you can read quicker, you then think information is power, and then you start to overvalue this. Oh, that's so fascinating. Because before it took, it took quite some time and, and they didn't even, standardized left to right. Before. Right. So that itself was an in invention, like right. a, a revolutionary invention. Right. This is going to get into weird trippy territory, but I think about like Sanskrit or Greek scholars I know. Yeah. And they often seem to think that like within the language is like embedded some sort of like energy mm -hmm. transfer. Like there's mm -hmm. like a hermetic, yeah. like gnosis would be the Greek uh -huh. sort of word for knowledge where the knowledge transfer is almost sublinguistic and like the, the energy state with which something's written or that you're in when reading the thing is deterministic of the actual information mm -hmm. that you might get and what you resonate yeah, with. Yeah, yeah. And it does feel like language has become more sort of like the information is just the thing itself. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have to get deeper into Verveke stuff. He, see, he seems like a, just yeah, a genius. Yeah, like a, yeah, he's one of the titans of our of our era. Interesting, okay, yeah. so you hold that much yeah, respect for him. Yeah, That's yeah, cool, yeah. okay. The four Ps, just knowing the four Ps is extremely interesting. Uh-huh. And just knowing that there are different forms of truth. So we think of truth uh -huh. like mathematical, like these timeless truths that you just grab and they're explicit statements. He's saying, no, there are other forms of truth and there's a, form, there's a truth to meditating. Yeah. What does that mean? There's a, we don't un even have the language for that anymore. We yeah. don't think like that. It's true. Yeah, we, I think we, we just think in terms of like the raw information and not, we don't think enough about... And fortunately, I think the stuff that... Like the energy state stuff is relegated to like woo-woo self-help. Mm -hmm. And then I, st I think there's something there to yeah. that woo-woo self-help. And there was kind of like a movement in the early 20th century called New Thought, 
which was, you know, it's similar to panpsychism, which you explore a lot on the show, where like everything is sort of a thought form, everything uh-huh. is somewhat conscious. And I, I tend to believe in that. But I, yeah, I think the current thinkers that, that are sort of vitalists and or animists mm-hmm. are unfortunately like lowbrow self-helpy people. So uh-huh. there's been sort of a bifurcation. I think we live in the age of kind of disenchantment. Uh-huh. And so that, that's probably the case with words too, right? Yeah. Like well, they're who, somehow who less. Some of these low quality people. You can edit this out. <laughs> I don't want to call you can, anybody you can, you out. Can edit this out. You can edit this. Okay, out. fine. Um, and this is a recording. The audio is recording. Like everything's good. Because last the last two times, yeah. you can include this if you want. Yeah. I was in New York, and so I was on yeah. Coleman's show. Yeah. And the reason why I'm not on Coleman's show, like yeah, this, is because we recorded in a studio where they paid for people to come yeah. and actually record it. The guy stepped out, and it was fine. I've stepped out during shoots. Yeah. And then he comes back in two hours later after this great conversation. He's like, oh, we only re- shoot. The, only the first 30 minutes were recorded. And I'm just, I'm That's so, so upset. That's so frustrating. Yeah, because uh, it, you can't recreate that. I know, I've had that and too. And I flew down. That's and I the prepped worst. for that. Because even with, with you asking me, like, I'm super flattered. And I say no to almost every single interview. Oh, I'm honored. Because it's so Thank you. stressful. Yeah. I, I'm filled with consternation and trepidation. You're doing like, great, man. You're, yeah. you're like very, also like... Sometimes I don't think I'm a great interviewee. I think I'm a good interviewer. Uh-huh. And I think you're both. Oh. And I and I was I didn't know, but now I know. I, you're I, good. You I mean that. You're okay. good. Yeah. This uh, this is these are extreme compliments. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah. Anyhow, so I have to prep because my answer to most every single question is I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I remember that shows you have a rigorous thought process. Yeah, I would probably go difficult. on some like tangent that like is orthogonally related to the question but doesn't directly yeah. answer it like yeah I don't, well that's a great way i don't know if but, it's a great way yeah yeah that's something that i wish i i need to there's certain skills to answering questions that i never thought about before right i, I don't think like that yeah and i see it now now that i'm prepping for an interview i can see it in other people I'm like oh that was a great way to take that question and develop it right even if they don't know the answer yeah yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's great yeah because i here's my my default mode of thought is Ask, you ask me a question? Just ask me a question. Like, it's some deep question. Okay. Um, do, what do you think consciousness is? Yeah, so this is what I do. I think for like 25 seconds and I come back and I say, I'm not, I'm not sure. What do you think? Because <laughs> several ideas are competing in my yeah, head. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Children just fighting and then I see, okay, you, what are your pros and cons? Oh, okay, yeah, but then... It's almost like whack-a-mole. Yeah. Like physics right now is in a state of whack-a-mole yeah. where they propose different theories because there are several, there are 45 different problems in yeah. physics. Like what is quantum gravity? Why are there three generations of matter? And what Baryani symmetry? And, yeah. And, and the Copernican, and there's some data that suggests that we're not, we're in a privileged place in the universe, yes. which goes against what we thought before. Yeah. So why is that? And why is the CMB the way that it is? And did inflation occur? And so on. Yeah. Or, or not did inflation occur, but why do we see the CMB in the, in the way that the cosmic microwave background? Mm-hmm. And so you propose some answers, but then new problems pop up and you're like, oh, okay, I solved two, but five more come up. Yeah. Okay. So in order to then retain these two, I could propose an addendum, which will solve three, but then that increases this one. And is this one more of a problem than, <laughs> than that one? Okay. What if I get rid of this? Which one's the sacred cow? The goal is, can we just whack all of these down? Uh, but that seems like insurmountable uh-huh. to anyone. But anyway, the same is occurring in my head when 
anyone asks me a question about anything that's even passively not surface level. So let's say, what is consciousness is very, definitely not surface level. That's mm -hmm. like deep, deep, mm -hmm. deep. That's maybe as deep as you can get, mm -hmm. according to some people. Mm -hmm. yeah, but, a, but you go down this like stack almost of your knowledge where it's like, well, if consciousness is like, if it's like, if consciousness is the orchestrated objective reduction Penrose thing, then the mind is a quantum sensor. And that, you know, like you go through a whole, yes, yeah, a yeah. whole kind of so I'm like, what? Well, I, I think a bunch of like, links in a chain. Here's a guest. Here's a guest. What would they say to that? Okay, what right. would that person say? What would that person say? And but and then also, what do I think? It's not. Even, I don't even think consciously about this. I think implicitly about this, and the, these ideas form connections. Yeah. But I don't. I think it's it's almost like I think it's a mistake yeah. for people to get their PhDs when they're in their twenties. Yeah. Because if you ask Ed Witten, if you ask virtually any scientist of okay. of a claim, what is it you believe? And then they list so let's say five statements in their field. And then you ask them, did you do your PhD believing those? They're like, yeah, generally. Yeah, so you yeah. crystallize this point of view when you're uh, at your most creative. Yeah. So you have someone who's in their 20s, like their IQ is at their potency. I think when you're 25, it, it peaks. Oh, that's interesting. And then it's just a slow, slow drop off. But regardless, creativity, you're super creative, you're mm. young. Mm. Then you get someone, they pick you when you're like 23 and say, you get an advisor and then they mm. tell you, okay, here's, you don't even want to, they tell you don't tackle huge problems uh -huh. because you can't get, get grant money for that you got to tackle yeah. solvable problems yeah and then there's this mantra like that the the best researchers know which types of problems to tackle the ones that are solvable and that are interesting and then so they're automatically like calling the type of problems away from the most interesting ones that you probably got interested in when you went to school for a bachelor's or totally. a master's totally so it's like i don't know of an alternate model but i admire people who are 50 and then they get their phd yeah. Because rather than crystallizing your point of view by only observing five doors of 10,000 totally. and choosing, okay, I'll choose door A and B. Yeah. Rather choosing door, if, well, Z is like the 26th and I'm saying there's 10,000, but rather yeah. choosing door or looking through, as you get older, you see blurry outlines of doors because you're, mm -hmm. you, you're not paid to investigate each like a PhD student mm -hmm. who can only investigate five because they have time and they investigate it deeply. Yeah. But when you're older, like what you do, what, what we do at Toe and what people who watch, you're just watching, you're getting a survey of the landscape like a bird flying above. Yeah. And then, or a buffet. It's better to think of like, so yeah. you get to choose. Yes. Rather yes. than sitting down and having a, a cordon bleu, one huge meal, which, which is the way that it works in academia right now. Hey, make this one meal and make this cuisine, this one That's cuisine That's fascinating. Great. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's like, I think you can only optimize for productivity or creativity, but the two are often inverse. Yes, and yeah. what you're saying is like, when you're in your 20s, you should be going really wide, yeah, have yeah. a super wide filter, which your show does, by the way. It's like a, it's like a, it's, it's like a great pre-PhD or something, because yeah, yeah. you can like sample from all the, yes, yes, the yeah. theories, yeah. and then you should go, you should dive really deep, which maybe is, it's a bit of a refutation on academia too, right? Because it's like, why do you have to round out the edges of some pre-existing theory? Why can't you have a bold new yeah. theory? So like I look at a lot of the people you entertain on your podcast and like some of them are like really well credentialed and like in high places in academia. Others are not. And they should be in my model of academia because they're brilliant. They just didn't like fit in correctly. Yeah. So. Yeah. So the question is like, well, what's the alternative? Because can you pay for someone? It's almost like saying, I'll pay you to just study for 30 years without producing, which is what I'm saying mm -hmm. should quote unquote happen. But should is such a, 
a foolish word because should has so many implications in it. Mm -hmm. Like when someone says, oh, you know what you should do for your channel? You should do so-and-so yeah. in the comment section or, or privately. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, but you don't know my goals. Like there's someone's like, yeah, you shouldn't appear as much or you should appear more or you should investigate the, or you shouldn't talk about this. And you're like, you don't know my goals though. Like someone's saying, right. yeah, the iPhone should do so-and-so. I'm like, yeah, but you you have no idea what are they balancing? What mm -hmm. are their pros and cons? What are they what are they what are they sacrificing in order for this? And what are they are they maximizing for this? You don't mm -hmm. know what's this should that yeah. you're imposing on them. So one thing that I do like that's a natural effect of the show, and I don't know whether this is one of your goals, but I think it's it's happened, is you have you're marrying very serious, rigorous physics with uh, an attempt to look at consciousness, acquire, uh, inquire into consciousness. And you even go into things like UFOs. And to me, you're hearkening back to a time in academia that was far more open when you do stuff like that. And I, I like that. I think that's yeah. great. Because you're, you're, to me, studying st anomalies can be harbingers of the next academic paradigm. Exactly. And right. you are bringing rigorous thought to current anomalies that a lot of people laugh at inside the beltway in academia, but in the future could become part of the established thought. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Yeah, so what is a disadvantage to the majority of people in ufology, which is that these crafts seem unrepeatable and or unfalsifiable to the to academia and so on it's difficult to get reliable data on it mm -hmm. so it sounds like a, a con i see that as a pro because virtually any time in physics or maybe in any field in science but in physics in particular mm -hmm. when there's this huge problem you develop new tools and then those new tools create some huge breakthrough yeah so quantum mechanics started like this but then even post quantum mechanics like well you can't observe this directly you can't observe the the wave, the particle directly, mm. but you want to get information about the wave function. Mm. So you come up with weak measurement. There's something called weak measurement uh. where you don't actually collapse it. You observe it weakly through multiple perspectives. Uh -huh. Get it's, it's like it's like barely it's like barely touching. So uh. it's, it's like so you're not jolted out of your uh -huh. your, your your dream state. Uh -huh. And then that and you triangulate has, yes, measurement. Right, that right. Way. And so that has implications in quantum computing. And then 
what else is there? Dark dark matter is not directly observed, but mm -hmm. and so now we have to come up with theories about that. But I think much more broadly, like okay, if we can't directly observe these craft, generally speaking, or we get blurry videos and it's anecdotal, what does that mean for science? Can science incorporate experiential, unrepeatable, one-offs? Yes, like outliers, yes. which are normally discarded. Yes. So I think in terms of, well, what is science evolving to? And you mentioned Gnosis. I have this word called abigenosis. Uh. Abige is like the Eastern way of knowing and the Gnosis is the Western. Uh. So I think that a science 2.0, yeah. considering science was nascent before and then developed to its current form, yeah. then you think, well, has it been, is it done? I don't think so. I think it's going to mature to something uh, else. Totally. So with Toe, one project I'm working on at the back of my mind is, well, what is this science 2.0? What is this abigenosis? Yeah. Well, I, th I also think, uh, I'm a big fan of this Austrian philosopher named Rudolf Steiner, and he created this thing called anthroposophy, which is kind of an offshoot of theosophy, which is a, a little bit trippier and I think kind of more huckstery, to be totally honest. He, uh, Steiner was a real guy. He actually created a lot of the modern uh, organic farming methods in the early 19th uh -huh. century. So he's like a decently rigorous scientist. But anthroposophy is all about... Um, the study of kind of the spirit world or psychology, but like applying very rigorous kind of science yeah. to those things. And it almost feels like the average person today discards their everyday epistemology for scientific dogma, for like an accepted framework. And so if you, if you were to pull 10 people on the street, have you had like a one-off yes. weird paranormal experience? They would say yes, like or no, like eight, eight, eight out of ten or yeah. nine out of ten would say yes, and, and yet none of those people incorporate that into their kind of uh, materialist worldview. And so I think looking at those things rigorously is, is important because we are the observer. We, man is the measure of all things. We are the observers of the universe, and then you have all this sort of quantum spookiness stuff that we just haven't figured yeah. out. So may maybe we can marry the two. I don't Bernardo know. Bernardo says that we let the mind be the bouncer of the heart, mm. meaning that we should allow ourselves to front load our heart, our intuition mm. and our experience, but we, but our mind gets in the way and says, nope, nope, nope. Oh, that's so cool. That's Bernardo Castro. Bernardo Castro, right, right. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that phrase. The mind is the bouncer of the heart. That's but it amazing. Yes. And we're probably over-indexed on the mind, specifically the, yeah. I don't know if the left brain, right brain dichotomy is perfect, but yeah. you know, that sort of what the left brain represents, it feels like we are over-indexed on or that. The, or there's multiple aspects to us. And one part of us intuitively values the implicit and maybe the perspectival participatory uh -huh. procedural like Verveke, but then publicly we feel like we have to value the propositional, the more explicit because otherwise that's not scientific and then we're irrational and we want to make sure that we're rational and, and we're not considered pseudo-intellectuals and so on. Right. So, and then we have this internal clash. So I'm not, it's not clear to me that we do allow the mind to be the bouncer of the heart because maybe there are multiple selves and the core of ourself mm -hmm. is the one that, you know what, this feels right, I'm gonna go with this. Mm -hmm. But then we have another self that said, no, 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 that it's just doubting. Yeah. It's like, we, at one level, the mind is the bouncer, but then at another, it's not. And we have this dissonance. Right, right, In interesting, yeah. And and it's important to try to reconcile those things. If... Yeah, maybe, the, I don't know, maybe that's what, well, anyway. What, no, uh, what were you gonna say? I was, I was gonna say, maybe that, that is in part what union integration is, is making sure these are all lined up properly. Mm. But there's no contradiction between them. And that's why it's a lifelong, you can never get there. You can only increase mm. 
Interesting. Um, do, do you have any favorite thinkers that were kind of inspirations for Toe or for, for wanting to get into well, this? Or Donald Hoffman was the reason the Theories of Everything channel started because he was being interviewed and is still interviewed on platforms where they just ask him about the same questions over and over. Mm. And then it comes down to like two statements. Mm. Oh, look how foolish materialism is. And mm. it's just like diatribes against mm. materialism, yeah. which is most of the consciousness podcasts or most of the consciousness explanations and, and videos that I see, that I see personally. And for me, that gets tiring after the first two, let mm -hmm. alone for the 200th. Right. And then the second one is, he says, space time is doomed. I'm like, okay, come on, Donald. Like, <laughs> is, there, is there any... I said this joke that I love Donald Hoffman because he's constantly saying new things. And by new things, I mean, he finds 50 different ways of saying space time is doomed. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm thinking, okay, given that he's predicating all this in the papers, which are math based, uh -huh. why is no one asking him about the math? I can go through that. That's yeah. my background. Yeah. So let me read the PDFs and then ask him about that. Yeah. Uh, what the heck does it mean that this set is consciousness or uh -huh. this this Markov chain, one of these is a conscious experience? What does that mean? Uh -huh. Why do, does that necessarily translate over to how we work evolutionarily or a perception? And does that also give rise to quantum mechanics, like he says? Mm. So I had all these questions and I can look through. And then I interviewed him fairly technically. And people seem to, to that seemed to take off. And so I was like, wow, this is banging on all cylinders because I've always been interested in theories of everything yeah. since I was, since I, I learned about them. And I like puzzles and math. And then I went into filmmaking. But now I'm like, okay, I can use filmmaking, meaning it's like video. Mm -hmm. And I can use these, these analytical skills that I have, yeah. or at least proclivities that I have. And it's like in the domain that I absolutely love. Yes. Oh my gosh. And I wouldn't say Donald is a favorite thinker of mine, but yeah. he's responsible for the channel. That's super off. cool. Yeah. I, well, I'd love to actually get a little deeper into his stuff because I intuitively, I sort of think that physics is more the interface between biology and like the inanimate world or something uh -huh. than most hardcore physicists would like admit. Uh -huh. That would be my bias. Uh -huh. And so... I've been fascinated and I'm sort of like a fan of Plato and I think we see shadow play at the end of the day, but that's also kind of an intuitive gestalt feel yeah, on my yeah. part. So I didn't realize, he, so he's fairly technical. Like he, he, he will sort of technically back up this, this theory. Yeah, him and his co-authors, one is named, oh, I believe Shatar, Shatar or Shakar. Anyway, he, he's a mathematician, that co-author. Mm -hmm. And Donald is knows way more math than he should for a computer si or for a cognitive scientist. Uh, so Donald actually has the chops that he's saying cool. much more than people can think much more than, sorry, much more than most people know. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, I want to go through his, sure. his stuff. Do you think Salvatore Pius, if, as yeah. my favorite guest, he would be one of my favorite guests. Okay. Interesting. So w do you think after having interviewed Pius once or twice, twice now, twice, twice. Yeah. Do you think that these Navy patents are legit? I reserve judgment. And so I, I don't even think in terms of that. Mm -hmm. So that would be a question that I would think for like 20 seconds to say, I don't know. So I'm trying to sure. not do that right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think he's, after having spoken to him, do you think he's, I mean, it sounds like you do think he's think a rigorous he's, thinker. I, oh, he's yeah. Real. I think he's, he's an extremely honest and heartfelt person. Cool. What I like about him more than, than his patents is, is when I was interviewing him, I asked him, I said, so how put off 
Hmm. And Eric Davis huh? and I think Jack Sarfati huh? said not terribly nice words about your uh, about your patents. Uh, so so what do you think? Uh, what do you make of their criticism? And uh, he he just he sat there and he's like, you know, I think their ideas are worthwhile. And I just oh, I don't know why oh. they don't think mine are, but but people should investigate theirs. Oh. And I'm like, oh my gosh! Like, one of the greatest stories from the Bible yeah. to me is when Peter, so Jesus was being taken away to be killed. Yeah. So this is like not even nonviolence, like the opposite of nonviolence, like yeah. way more nonviolent than nonviolent. Yes. Yeah. Peter cut off the ear of the person who's taking Jesus to uh, kill him, uh-huh. and then Jesus like, don't do that. Uh-huh. And then he not only said, don't do that, he took the ear and healed it. Oh on the on the person who's taking Jesus away to, to kill him. Kill him. Yeah. So Jesus is like, no, no, you love your enemy. Like you feed your you feed your family and your enemy before you even feed yourself. Wow. And 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 you wash like on the night that Jesus was going to die. Yeah. In the stories. Yeah. He's washing the feet of his disciples, like doing the most lowliest of tasks. Wow. The night before, and he knew, like in the stories, that he knows that he's going to die the next day, and he's like. No, this is still important. You humble yourself. Wow. Nothing is beneath you. Wow. And and that's just like gets gets me, man. Like if, if I think about that too much, I just start to to well, to tear up. Yeah. And so Salvatore Pius, like that love thy enemy, that's like something that I, I hope to be motivated by. And I see that in him, and that's what resonated most with me. That's amazing. That's super cool. I, I love the episode you did with him and Stefan Alexander. Yeah. He's a really cool guy too. Yeah. I was just speaking of Jesus. This is a, a total tangent, but uh, in the last week and a half, I just spent some time with Randall Carlson, mm-hmm. um, who works with Graham Hancock. He's a sort of geologist, mm-hmm. esotericist. And then uh, Brian Marescu, who wrote this book called The Immortality Key, mm-hmm. um, which is all about these like ancient mystery rituals, these Eleusinian mystery rituals that took mm-hmm. place in Greece and Socrates, Pythagoras, Aristotle, Plato, they all uh-huh. went through these things. Uh-huh. And both of them agree this is kind of a heretical belief. They think that Jesus never died. And that if you read the text, Pilate, who was the governor of Rome or of that little contingency of Rome at the time, uh, poked Jesus's flesh with the spear and it was to see whether he was dead or not. But they think maybe Jesus was given a sedative and it was sort of either a mystery ritual or he like faked his own death. Mm. And then he was put in a shroud of like resuscitating herbs by this guy, Joseph of Arimathea. Uh And then he survived and maybe even had a bloodline like Uh and like into today or something, which is really fascinating. I don't know. It's definitely (laughs) heretical. Yeah. It's heretical, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah, So I don't, I I don't know, but (laughs) who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Do you, are you interested at all in the Bible or or anything? I'm, I'm super interested. Yes. Yes. In the Bible, but not just the Bible. Mm. I don't discount religion. Like I used to be this inexorable, uncompromising atheist Yeah, from eight years old Yeah, up until mm-hmm. a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was, I used to be a fan of like, you know, the four horsemen, uh, yeah. Daniel Dennett, right. um, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, who was the fourth and the fourth was horseman. And uh, Dawkins, of course, mm. uh, and they were just, you know, like uh, yeah, and I loved watching the God, that. The God delusion yeah. and God is not great, and you know all that stuff. Yeah, it was great. Mm. And uh, and then I started to realize, I don't know. I just think there's so much weirdness that we can't explain to the world, and 
even through a physics lens, like I'm interested in the anthropic principle and sort of the Goldilocks environment that we live in. And to me, that signals possible intelligent design mm-hmm. and anomalies in evolution as well. Yeah. And so I don't know whether that's God. God to me is sort of a placeholder term, but mm. something mystical and intelligent. Have you heard of Dembski? No. So Dembski, uh, how, I would like to look through this. And by the way, me saying that I'm no longer this inexorable atheist mm. doesn't mean that I'm now this devout religious person. Mm. It just means I don't deride the religious and I investigate and take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Dembski has an argument based in math, which I would like to go through much like, Don, like Donald Hoffman's, yeah. which Stephen Meyer, who's an, a proponent of yeah. intelligent design, uses, yeah. Yeah. which says, I think it says something like the search space of DNA or of the search space of evolution is too vast to have outputted this complexity Correct. this fast, yeah. something yeah. like that. Totally. But he uses something called the no free lunch theorem mm. or no free lunch theorems. And that is by David Walpart, who was a guest on Tope. Mm. And David Walpart has this whole article saying like, Dembski misused my arguments and, uh. and he also used them in words. And he's like, you need to make it mathematically precise. And there are two types of arguments. One where it's like art and literature and and religious and so on. And that's a word type argument. And then there's like the domain of the specifically defined, which is mathematical. And there are only few results in the specifically defined. And some of them are like Gödel's incompleteness theorem uh-huh. and, and the no free lunch theorems. Those are limiting theorems or uh-huh. no go theorems, but they're extremely powerful because they're precise. And he's yeah. like, his is in the just words arguments, which means you can't tell if it's true or not true. You uh, can't even make a decision. Right. That's what Walpart says. So I want to get Walpart to talk with Dembski on the channel. And oh, just, interesting. Like, hash it out. Interesting. So yeah, true. Just words. It's like not even wrong or yeah, something. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. What do you What do you make of? You've talked to a lot of the same people as me on the UFO front. What do you make of that world? And then why don't I get even more concrete? Do you have a specific theory there? Because there is so much smoke and mirrors in that world. Yeah. That, and it that's, is hard to tricky, get to the huh? bottom of that haystack. Yeah. So why do you think why do you think there is so much disinformation? Like, is that itself a clue? This is something, by the way, I was talking to Ryan Graves about, which mm-hmm. on another podcast recorded for 39 minutes of a two-hour podcast. I they flew me to Boston for this. Yeah. I remember I, I have such a hard time sleeping. Just, <laughs> I have insomnia. Yeah. And it's it's a crippling, crippling. Oh, no. It's, it's Melatonin doesn't help? It sometimes, sometimes helps, but okay. I don't like to take it too frequently because yeah. I'm extremely cautious about being addicted or building tolerance. Sure, sure, and, sure. Including sure. like caffeine, like I drink. I make sure I note which days I drink coffee. So That's that awesome. Yeah. But anyhow, so that was frustrating. But... I was speaking with him, with Ryan Graves, about, about, ah, yes, yes, yes. That some, that the way that I look at this is in terms of clues, but yes, rather in terms of clues. Mm-hmm. So some people say, yeah, where, where's the proof? Uh-huh. Well, firstly, in science, there is no proof of anything. So there's uh-huh. no proof. You don't even think in terms of yeah. proof. You think in terms of evidence. Yeah. And plausible arguments and, and models and so on. Yes. But I think for here the best way for me to conceptualize this is like Sherlock Holmes and then there's clues. Yes. So the Sherlock Holmes doesn't discount something because only one person said it. Yes. Instead, he takes it extremely seriously. He almost, he, I don't think he's ever said, yeah, but I'm not going to listen to that person because of so-and-so and so. Yes. And then not only that, so he incorporates, then he, he puts together, he prunes this tree, this, uh, this like Ramos tree, that of conjectural tree down to one solution. 
by considering what is, well, he even said, once you, I think, what's that phrase? The the removal of the impossible, what remains is only what what is or something like that. Uh, I've never heard that. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> something like if you, if you remove all that is impossible, then what remains has to be what is or what uh -huh. is possible, something like that. And he even sees non-evidence as evidence. So one of the famous stories is there was a dog that didn't bark in some robbery or so. I forget what it was. Mm. And we just, if that was me, I would just not think much about that. Firstly, I wouldn't notice that a dog didn't bark. Yeah. How do you notice the absence of something, yeah. let alone take that and be like, that's important. Uh -huh. So it came into play later in the story because he's like, that dog always barks. Right. Why didn't it bark? Because it must have known the intruder. Uh, Otherwise it would have barked. Uh, so then he whittled down who the possible sus suspects could be. So anyway, now I'm wondering, well, well, given that there's so much disinformation, is that itself a clue? Given that there's a lack of information, is yeah. that itself a clue? Yeah. To what? I don't know. What it's, do you a, think? it's a great question. I mean, I honestly oscillate back and forth. They're, they're, like, it feels like maybe by design. What do you hope it is? My hope is that there's some ontological truth around like beings that are benevolent, that we could like ascend into their sort of state. And then my, my intuition is that there's a combination of those beings and bad ones, and that, that we're sort of uh, in the midst of a cosmic war and we're low-level instantiations or pawns in that cosmic war, which sounds insane, I realize. Yeah. Have you heard of the Dark Forest? No. What's so the, the three-body problem? Oh, yeah. Okay. Have you, so you've read it? No, I, I haven't. I've started the, the first one, but no, I don't. I, Can you I, tell me about it? Uh... I, I know he has sort of like an inform like well it's like the, the aliens sort of stagnate the physics so we don't blow ourselves up or whatever. So and, as far as I know, yeah. it, it's it's something it's like so here's something that, that I think about frequently is that if you're exploring any topic mm. and you or if you're doing research in any topic, mm. I think you should explore the boundaries and have an answer to the question of what could the answer possibly be that would make me burn my hands. For, and, and not investigate this. Mm. So meaning, like, for instance, AI. Mm. I have a feeling that the people developing, uh, people at OpenAI and Google, Google Brain and Microsoft, whatever their research component yeah. is, that they could be creating the tools of civilization's demise. Yeah. And they need to be thinking about that deeply. Yeah. And same with Richard Feynman said this about the bomb. They weren't thinking about the, they were just so fascinated by the physics. Yeah. It was just fun to do research. Yeah. They weren't thinking about how many millions of lives would be destroyed, yeah, how horrific sure. and how the world would change forever. And Einstein said that he would burn his hands had he known he would never have signed off saying like you should build the bomb based yeah. on E equals MC squared and so on. Right. He said after the the bombs had dropped, he's like, I would have burned my hands. I, I would not have done that. And Oppenheimer's, you know, I, I am Shiva, destroyer of worlds or whatever. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. So then the then I wonder about the, the UFO scene. So some people, they're like, I want disclosure. Well, firstly, like that presumes the government has, well, I think the government has more information. Almost everyone can, can agree on that. I think Almost so, everyone. yeah. But, well, full disclosure, whether that comes from the government or we actually find out what this is. Like, do you want to know? Do you truly want to investigate this? Do you know? I think about this all the time. Is there something about... There is something to say about Pandora's box. There are truths that make you just want to recoil in horror. 100%. Unless you want to say that truth is by nature good, in which case that's like a religious statement and that's a deep one and I hope that's true. Yeah. Like if you truly believe that, well, what's your evidence? Speaking about evidence, people want to say, well, where's your Yeah, 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 yeah. But anyhow, so the dark forest story is where I think we're 200 years in the future and yeah. there's this Chinese scientist and she finds a way to contact 
other civilizations, if they're out there, uh -huh. by shooting some message to the sun and it broadcasts it intergalactically. Yeah. So she does that and she says like, we're here, please help us. We're, we're humans that are on this earth and so on. She gets a message back and it says, we heard you. If you know what's good for you, you will not send another message. Stop. Mm. Do not send any more messages. Wow. And she doesn't know where it's from. She, maybe she knows where it's from, like some galaxy or over there. And she's like, she thinks about it and she says, she said, she said yeah. another she's, like, she's like, I'm sorry, Earth is too barbaric. We're at war. People dislike each other. There's racism, etc. Yeah. Please, we're a primitive civilization. You're far more advanced than us. Come save us. It turns out that initial message came from some galaxy. I, I've forgotten the galaxy, but it comes from a civilization called the Trisolorians. Uh -huh. Trisolorians, okay. like three suns. Yeah. Trisolorians. They they have this civilization. They're monitoring the skies, like looking for people who are who are going to talk to them. Why? Well, it you get you get the answer, but you'll get the answer soon. They go and they find the the other scientists who who sent that that other message that replied that said don't send any more replies. Yeah. They find them. They execute that person because that per you're supposed to be listening and tell your higher ups like, look, we found another civilization. Right. And it's because Earth has a resource, and we didn't know that we had this resource. So we think of our resources as like uranium or, or silver deposits or water yeah. or the the. Goldilocks zone, yeah. but it's so much more fundamental than that. The resource that we have is stability. The fact that we can even formulate laws of physics is like what Wolfram would call a pocket of, of reducible complexity. Yeah. Like we live in a place that we can even say F equals MA or E equals MC squared. And then we look, at, look out at the universe and we see anomalies and we think, oh, that's because we don't have the right laws. And it's, no, it's because the laws just don't work the way that you think they work. You're yeah. in a pocket of great stability. Yeah. So this is something that other civilizations desperately want because they live in chaos. Mm. And so as soon as they hear this, the, the Trisolarans, they then start to come to Earth and they tell the Earthlings that we're coming. And some of the Earthlings like today, they're like, have, they're split. They're like, no, these are gods coming to save us. They're actually good. Let's communicate back with them. And you hear this today. today. And then the other half is like, no, these are demons, which is another rhetoric you hear. Yeah. Stay away. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. So anyway, the, 
That's fascinating. It's, it's, but it's almost like a Rorschach for the person or something. It's like, what's their orientation? And, and that defines whether they think it's angels or demons yeah. or aliens or... So the, you're touching on something fascinating because I, I do think we seem to emphasize tremble talking about same. It trips okay. me out. Yeah, like these are s s tough subjects, man. They are, and and if you like, intuitively, I sometimes get the sense that we emphasize sort of nuts and bolts and crafts and ETs and science exploration and all that seems fun. And actually that's somewhat of a distraction. Yeah. And there's some sort of core ontological truth that is jarring if a person were to understand it. And that's maybe the the hidden thing. Or convince themselves of it because there's some truths that are extremely, extremely convincing that it's so difficult to unconvince yourself mm. of. And and it could be false. Mm. So Yeah, I I, I don't it, know. It's so tricky. Yeah. And they and they're so there's some truths, quote unquote unquote truths that are so damaging. I think if someone hasn't thought deeply enough, sorry, if someone doesn't think so, then you you definitely have not thought deeply enough about it. Do about anything. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's just truly, truly think, think, like think mm. yourself. Oh my gosh. Like I can I can barely compose the words to talk about some of well. Yeah. Well, do do you think that? certain heterodox scientists in the past let's 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 frame this differently because clearly in the distant past uh heterodox scientists have been persecuted so galileo or giordano bruno or people like that that would make me think maybe in the recent past mm -hmm. there are scientists who have been persecuted for having heterodox ideas mm -hmm. like in the 20th century have do you yeah. think that any of that is true? Like there are obviously all the conspiracies around Tesla and his work. I mean, do you think that these are just sort of crazy fringe conspiracies or? I, so here's one story that I, I don't know what to make of it and I haven't heard an explanation. Mm -hmm. of Edward Lee Scallon, have you heard of him? No. Edward Lee Scallon is this five foot two person, super skinny yeah. because all he ate was sardines apparently and crackers <laughs> and was a recluse, uh -huh. just alone. I don't even think he had a wife, but even if it doesn't make a difference to the story, he didn't have friends. And he built what I believe is called Coral Mountain. So you can overlay whatever this is correctly. Oh, Coral you, Gables. I don't know. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's these massive stone structures yes. that are precise to the millimeter that to this day, you would need teams and huge machinery to get even close and it's still not as precise. But the point is that he said, Edward Lee Scallon said he understood the laws of electricity and magnetism. And he understood how the pyramids were made. Hmm. But he would never tell anyone. And sometimes children would peer through and try and see like, how, how are you making it? And then he would just stop doing what, and so I'm so curious for why, why? If you had the, the secrets hmm. and how did you do it? There's apparently this the infamous story of like a gate at Coral Gardens? Gables, I Gables. think. Yeah. So the, there's this gate that it's two tons, mm -hmm. however many, it's extremely heavy. And it's on a, on a divot or a rivet where pushing it is like so smooth. Mm -hmm. But then afterward, some, there was some storm or some issue happened and then it became stuck. So then they had to re-put it in place, like yeah. men now. Yeah. And they took many people and plenty of machinery and now it's, it's nowhere near as smooth, That's even though we have so much machinery. He just did it by himself. That's so As far wild. as we can tell. Yeah, and there's like all sorts of megalithic architecture from you know thousands of years ago when we didn't have any clo anywhere close to the civil engineering 
that we have today. And we couldn't even recreate those things now with our current civil engineering. So I do have, I do think it's valid to inquire into that and ask questions there. And I guess the the Tesla thing I was sort of getting at, maybe this is BS, was like, I think he was doing uh, zero point experiments. Like that was always the holy grail for him in uh, Westinghouse in Long Island. And it was like funded by JP Morgan. And then the funding was pulled. And the question is like, the government did, this is not a conspiracy. The government did like lock up his his files. Huh. And actually the person who went through the files is John Trump, who's uh, huh. Trump's uncle, who is a, sci- a very prominent scientist at the Rad Lab at MIT. Wow. So a radar expert and he worked with Vannevar Bush and all, you know, all the top scientists of that day. And the question is always like, did, did Tesla discover something fundamentally new that was hidden or is that just yeah BS? what is your intuition i don't know you're, i go undecided on that undecided i'd, I'd say pretty probably didn't would be my guess mm-hmm. but i find it interesting yeah what you bring up is extremely important mm. meaning that namely that scientists the heterodox meaning like mm. they have some different point of view or different belief mm-hmm. they get scorned and disparaged for talking about it publicly. And then the question is, well, then they'll say, the objection is there is no evidence for what you're saying. And most of these scientists would say, you're right, so can we look for it? Yes. How do we find the evidence without inquiring about it? Are yeah. we not allowed to even question? So part, like one of the reasons why I I love your channel oh, is thank because, you. yeah, well, firstly, you do a great job with editing. Thank you. You do a great yeah, job. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, and, and it's like, there's someone else who does a great job, and you had him on as well. The Red Panda Koala. Oh, he's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Red Panda Koala just great. makes you want to weep. Like how mm-hmm. much research it goes into. Ken Burns of UFOs. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. <laughs> he's fascinating. great. Yeah. You know, a lot of your podcast is is dedicated to the guests and their ideas. After having interviewed some of the top scientists yeah. in in the U.S. and and the world. Um, do you think there are overlooked areas of science where maybe if you weren't working on tow, you'd investigate these sort of areas? There, so algorithmic information theory, mm. that's David Wolpart's with the limiting theorems, like no free lunch theorems. Uh-huh. David Wolpart said the largest philosophical results are in algorithmic information theory. So that's an intersection of computation and information mm. and it has to do with complexity. Like you've heard this term Kalmogorov complexity. Have you heard of it? No. Okay, so Kal- the Kalmogorov complexity of something is how much information is needed to specify it. Mm-hmm. So for instance, you think pi, the digits are infinite. So maybe you need an infinite amount of digits, sorry, infinite amount of information to specify it. No, because there's a formula. So how much information goes into that formula? Oh, okay, another way of thinking of it is like, you have some out, okay, a program gives you an output, like on your phone, there's some output or on your computer. Then you wonder, well, how much information was in the program needed to generate that output. So you can look at the output and you can think, oh, well, it's extremely complex, like a fractal. Mm. Actually, a fractal is like three terms, like mm. Z equals so-and-so. Mm. So that's Kalmogorov complexity. It turns out calculating the Kalmogorov complexity is itself uncomputable in general, mm. Mm. meaning that you, there is no algorithm to compute the Kalmogorov complexity. Mm. Gödel's incompleteness theorem doesn't, isn't exactly algorithmic information theory, but it's tangent to it. Mm. So that's an interesting result. Mm. So that's something that I would study. Mm. Category theory. So something, you, I interview so many people on their different toes mm-hmm. and people often ask, well, what's your favorite toe? Yeah. And I see 
them as as like as if they're different tolls. But mm. I'm thinking like they're often reflections of something deeper. And they're imprecise and there's often mud and dirt that needs to be wiped off. So sure. it's not completely I'm touching the trunk, I'm touching the leg, you're touching the tail. Yeah. It's not completely that. But it's more like imagine you can expand that where some people like I smell the grass. Oh, I feel like I'm being bathed. And then that's still part of the elephant because the elephant smells like grass in its best case. Mm-hmm. And then the and then you're being rained on because the trunk is outputting water. Mm-hmm. So more like experiential claims as well, not just all feeling, yes. but other senses. So I get that, that they're reflections of something. And what I'm attempting to do and doing just unconsciously uh-huh. is like this metaphysical Rosetta Stone where there are different uh-huh. concepts being talked about different with different words and different. So Chris Langan may say, this is a syntactic covering of so-and-so. Mm. Then you're like, what's a syntactic covering? And this person may call it something else. And you mm. realize, oh, they're talking about the same. So what I am attempting to do is a metaphysical Rosetta Stone. And then there's this branch of mathematics called category theory, mm. which itself is a Rosetta Stone of math. Mm. So there are these different sections of math. So physics is... Can, can be considered a section of math where you have physical systems. So like this could be a physical system and then you do something to it. So you transform it, you light it on fire and then it becomes another physical system uh-huh. or even this and then you leave it there or like this. That was a transformation of this system. Uh-huh. So you have a system, transformation goes to another system. Uh-huh. Okay. In math, you have axioms and then you do something which is the proof uh-huh. or deduction to come up with another statement. So you have statements do, 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 which is the deduction statements. Physics, you have systems, transformation, physical transformation, mm-hmm. another system. Mm-hmm. Compu- computer science, you have you have data types. Mm-hmm. You do something to it, which is the program, uh-huh. and you come up with another data type or, or something else. Uh-huh. So it turns out that between math, which is the axioms, the proof, another set of statements, and computer science, which is types, data types, and then you do something to the program and you come up with some output. Uh There's an analogy, an exact analogy, and that's called the Curry-Howard correspondence. That's like Mm. from the 1970s. Mm -hmm. That alone blows my mind. Mm. Then it turns out that there's a correspondence between the way that the systems in physics work, which transform into another system, and the way that math works, and the way that computer science works, and that's encapsulated with category theory. And it's the same as just, Mm -hmm. as, uh, as logic and logical deductions, and I forgot the I forgot the third, the fourth one. Oh. Mm. Regardless, category theory is a Rosetta Stone of mathematics, of logical wow. thinking. Yeah. So I'm curious if category theory can be used to help me come up with this Rosetta Stone of toes. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, if toes are based in something analy- analytical, which I don't think they are, uh-huh. and it may be the case that even conceiving of toe as partially analytic uh-huh. may be diminishing and completely misleading. Right. That may be the case. Yes. But I, either way, I'm willing to explore it in the same way that some scientists, I think, should be willing to explore yeah. what there is no evidence for. You go out, go out and explore. Like, that's how you find the borders. Like, most ideas are horrible yeah. and will fail, but you have to test several. Yes. That's a, so interesting. So, category theory is to... Yeah, I guess it's dependent on it's dependent on it being math based. I think the and, fourth one was category theory itself. Sorry. Okay. So category theory and is you have what are called objects and then morphisms mm-hmm. to another object. Mm-hmm. So it's like a point, and then you have an an edge to another point. Mm-hmm. And so and so the question is, can you do a similar Rosetta Stone mapping of toes, which would be fascinating. That's one of the reasons I wanted to make that artistic piece uh-huh. because that would help me. It wouldn't be precise mm-hmm. because it's not. 
it, like David Wolpert would say, those yeah. are just words in a sense. Yeah. But it gives me an intuition and that's what I build off of. Or that's what any scientist builds off of, a researcher builds off of. That would be fascinating to just build a, a true map. What, what would the map sort of look like? Like, would it look like a database or like a, like a relational database sort well, of thing? Or one of it... the easiest answers yeah. is to just take theoretical physics, which is already relegating reality to just what physics is, and then mm. relegating that to theoretical physics. Mm -hmm. And then take, okay, what are the contenders for toes in theories of everything in, in the physical sense, the theoretical physics, physical sense, so string theory, loop quantum gravity, perhaps, mm -hmm. geometric unity, Wolfram, mm -hmm. Garrett Lisi, shape dynamics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Causal dynamic triangulation, so on. Okay, so you take maybe 10, mm -hmm. and then you, you put them on the x-axis, and then you say, okay, what are the unresolved problems in physics? Mm -hmm. And you put that on the y-axis. So there's, well, I can voice, or I can give you something later if, you, if you're gonna include this. So there's like very, there's about 20 unsolved problems in physics that are considered like, these are major problems. Yep. Whether or not they are, even that's a bit somewhat controversial, but, Regardless, so, so you put them like, there. like quantum gravity. Yes, or, like quantum, yeah, is, yeah. can you make this? In, can you quantize gravity or or, or geometrize the quantum? Right, like, like Weinstein, Weinstein, like unify yeah. them in some way. Yep. And why are why oh neutrinos? Do neutrinos have mass or or neutrino uh, mm -hmm. oscillation? There's some other problems, CP violation, so on, so on, so on. Whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then check marks. Does this which theories solve which ones? So that's one way of at least showing diagrammatically. A relationship between them but then they're not subsets of one another they're not that's like a ranking of the toes rather than a relationship uh -huh, with them. Uh -huh. but that's something that i'm working on with a, a mathematician friend of mine named carlos zapata cool and he he works for the wolfram institute but he i told him he's like he's not allowed to be biased against like, who can't just well i think why that would be so interesting is it, go, it goes back to your answer to the question of like why you're not good at answering a question if you don't know the answer you usually yeah. just say i don't know and you go down this sort of like like yeah. database of your own knowledge or whatever just having a a map of, of like quantum gravity solves this but it creates this problem mm -hmm, mm -hmm. literally just seeing that with like the 20 most credible toes i think would be really cool yeah and then you can sort of play whack-a-mole and like maybe mix and match in certain places right, and then right. try to reconcile theory instead of it you know the holy grail always being quantum field theory and uh you know relativity or whatever maybe it could be like two new toes that are like yeah. derivatives of like they're, they're attempting to solve that but like maybe those two new toes actually are compatible based on the pros and cons yeah. or something I, I often think we we think that the problem or we've been told that the problem is quantum gravity mm. weinstein says like that's this huge distraction because there are other <laughs> yeah, problems yeah but i also think rather than trying to combine quantum field theory and general relativity or the standard model and general relativity, we think that it's like a jigsaw puzzle. We just have to find the right angle. Mm. How do you know that there's just these two pieces? What if there's 12 other pieces or yeah. 25 other pieces and these two don't directly connect? This connects to this, which connects to this, which connects to this, which connects to that. Yeah. Maybe it's not even 2D. Maybe it's 3D. Totally. Maybe they're not supposed to connect. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, so, gr it's a great point. It's, it's a, like, oh, th then your mind just explodes and then you're just left in a pool just <laughs> looking at the sun and... and and wondering about your existence. Yeah, human. We're not good at multivariant systems. Like we we need to concatenize everything into yeah. like something super coherent. Yeah, and it's like I know the answer, but yeah, yeah. And and also we I like, think yeah. of that as something demeaning. But I also wonder how much of that is, there's something loving about that. Like there's some we often think loving is like the connections and mm. the union, and you become one with. Mm. Jonathan Pajot said that 
Jonathan Pajot, you know? I don't. Okay, so Jonathan no. Pajot is like a, a symbolist. He studies symbols. Okay. A Christian icon, a Christian iconographer. Cool. Yeah. He said that the Christian way to salvation is different than the non-dualist way. Mm. And this is something Wolfgang Smith, who the reason I came to LA also echoes. So the we have this perennial view that all religions have some aspect of truth. And I tend to have that because I'm just like a liberal person and I want that to be the case. Yeah. So I tend to always try to find, well, what's the commonality between them? What's the truth between them? Yeah. He was saying that started actually in the early 1900s by a few people who corrupted this and mm -hmm. said like om almost every religion has something credible to it. I'm not saying I believe their ideas, but I'm just mm -hmm. saying this is what they say. Mm -hmm. And that's called perennialism, just so you know. And the Baha'i faith, I believe, is one of them. Yeah, But yeah. I'm not quite sure. So I'm... I'll put a huge asterisk. Well, Baha'i is definitely like all the least monotheistic religions. Are, they're all right or something. Yeah, you like know? let's interweave them or they're, uh -huh. they're, they're synchronistic. They're synchronistic with one another. Uh -huh. Okay, so he would say there is just two real religions and one is the Vedic traditions. So not even Buddhism because uh -huh. Vedic is, has some contradictions with Buddhism, namely about gods and what you should do with your sacrificing and so on. Right. Which, sorry, rituals and so on. And, mm -hmm. and Buddhism is like non-theistic and, and just focuses on the Four Noble Truths or the eight, Eightfold Path. Mm -hmm. So the Vedic tradition and then the, the Christian tradition. And then often we, in our spiritual circles, the ones that we run in, we hear, and we also, at least for myself, tend to think, no, no, you know, the Eastern one is the one that's more encompassing. Right. And, and, and the Eastern one encompasses the West. And so the Western is like so literal and so so prosaic but actually this is something i've come to think about for the past few months independent of them i was wondering you know is it the case that we're just so absolutely used to the west because we grew up in it we understand the linear progress progress of god did this and abraham came and jesus did this and sacrificed on the cross and so on we just see that as it's just we don't even think about it mm. we just understand it like this mm. is it the case that the East has just been so influenced by the West in the past hundred years or so that they're able to comprehend it in the same way. But we look at the West, we look at the East, sorry, in the West, we look at the East as being colorful mm. and being so open and creative. Like, wow, there's so many ideas. Mm. There's spirits and reincarnation and so on. Yeah. But they look at that in the same way we look at Christianity. It's like, that's just so prosaic and bromidic and flatlined. Mm -hmm. And when they hear about Christianity for the first time, they're like, it turns out that that is the case that the San that Sanskrit there is no word for sin they have no concept of salvation or the fall of Adam and Eve uh -huh. so I didn't know that this is something Wolfgang was telling me he's saying that like in the Vedic tradition they just can't comprehend that if you speak to some of the people who aren't influenced by Christianity from like the 1940s or 1930s or so on so Jonathan Pajol says the Christian way of salvation is is unity with God, but it's retaining your multiplicity and actually becoming more multiple, mm. which is something that we can't do. We don't even have the words for or the con concepts for. Like we think unity means same as. Mm. But there's a phrase that Jonathan Pajol said, quoting someone, maybe C.S. Lewis, that the blades of grass in heaven are sharper, are too sharp for man. Mm -hmm. Meaning that somehow heaven, rather than this being illusory, which is what the, the Vedic traditions tend to emphasize. Um, I, uh, yeah. Yes. The Western tradition tends to emphasize, no, 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 this is real and it will only become more real. Oh, like that's so cool. The blades of grass are so sharp. Yeah. You can't handle them right now. Yeah. You're going to, like he says, Jonathan Pajot says, Saint Paul will be more saints-like rather than being more god-like mm. and just in a, in a sea mm. of nothingness. <laughs> so that's extremely, extremely interesting to think about. Mm. 
That's fascinating. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Imagine that's that's what sacrifice is. Is somehow you love it so much that you give it you give it an element of God because that needs to be there, but you retain your multiplicity. Much like there's something loving in naming all the animals. Mm -hmm. I asked my dad when I was younger, like, why you love my sister? Like, don't you love me more? Like, you love me more than my sister. Yeah. I don't like that you love them. Yeah. And he drew this tree, and he's like, each of you are different. You're on separate branches. And there's something like you can love someone more because you give them a name and you see them as different. Mm -hmm. Rather than just that we tend to emphasize connection. There's something about disconnectedness yes. too that is loving. Yes. And I, I love the idea of not systematically trying to not pre-crystallize knowledge and just thinking of truth almost instead of it, it being like a clear end state as yeah. almost like a dialectic process, which yeah. is kind of like what you're engaging yeah. at. Like when I think of Plato's symposium, it's like you're just dwelling on the virtues and then yeah. you're sort of talking about it peripatetically with these other really intelligent people. And I think about your show and it's kind of like that, you know, well, you're sort of best case, like hopefully, thank you. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean it, it, it is. <laughs> yeah. It's sometimes I wonder, I get intimations of the, the more monastic types, which would say, you know, don't mm. even talk about it by talking about it. You're distracting and you're mm. diminishing mm. and you're desecrating, you're desecrating it. Uh -huh. So the best way is to not even contemplate these questions, just live your life. Yeah. Just go out and live. I, I've had feelings of that. And Wittgenstein, you know Wittgenstein. Of course. He apparently in his 40s or so came to the same conclusion. And he stopped philosophy. <laughs> it's wild that you're saying that because this is something I'm thinking a lot about right now. And, and it, I was just going to say something very similar, which is like, there's a, a part of the, set, the setup of reality itself that is so sacred where I'm, I'm sure you relate to me on this. Like I'm so in my head about like, you know, I gotta find the truth. I gotta figure this out. What, what, what's, what's underneath the fabric of reality? And you, you can drive yourself a little crazy, yes. you know. Like that, that's an understatement, man, Jeez. Yeah, you can go yeah. on these like weird wild goose chases and end up in all sorts of places. And sometimes I think about it and I'm like, you know, I'm not feeling well today. Maybe I should have just taken care of myself yeah. and not, or like, Maybe some banal, not banal, sacred human connection that I'm considering banal that I'm overlooking so I can read this book because I'm like so curious about this one uh -huh. bizarro uh -huh. theory that the, the, it's maybe the connection thing that like I'm really kind of feeling like I should, I should indulge. That's the more important yes. sacred thing. Yes, yeah. And that will bring you some sort of theory of everything where it'll bring out innate knowledge in, you f in the future that like where you perceive things at a higher level or something. And I'm sure you struggle with this. The, the tension between the intellectual curiosity and then the, I just have to live my life every day and like do what I feel like doing. Like that, that's so hard for me. It doesn't come naturally to me. So my wife saved my life, like mm. saves my life. Every day she saves my life in many, many ways. And one of them is just hear that sound, that's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. 
What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. She doesn't think about any of these topics. She doesn't care about these. Yeah. She doesn't understand them. She yawns if I bring up that's a three-syllable awesome. word. Yeah, that's okay. She, and it's like so insulting. Yeah. And, and but so, it's it brings you down to yeah. size, cuts you down to size. Carl and, Jung yeah. said what separate Nietzsche, Nietzsche from him is that, or what happens is that it's easy to get so in your head that you float above the ground and float away. Nietzsche lost his mind. to be grounded. Yeah. And so Carl Jung said, what grounded me is one, his wife, he said, and then mm -hmm. two, my practice, I'm responsible for other people. And then three, like some other day-to-day, -day, just regular values. Yeah. And then I also wonder, well, we're trying to conceptualize the toe, or at least me and you often analytically. Mm -hmm. Is it that, is it that like, Verveke had the four Ps. Uh -huh. Is it just propositional? Is there something true about simply living, like somehow living and being loving yeah. and being good. Yeah. If you're experiencing anxiety or dis disquietude or consternation, then there's something that's false. There's a falseness exactly. to it. That true and false don't just apply to statements like Pythagorean theorem is true or false. It's not just that. It can also be modes of action can be true or false. Yes. And the theory of a theory of everything can not only have a propositional component, but many others process components. And perhaps one is primary. Maybe the process is primary. Yes. Maybe it's just, just live your life and somehow that's true. Like way more true than anything <laughs> you can grasp <laughs> mentally. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, just walk and carry water or that sort yeah. of transcendentalist yeah, idea someone. of, help. yeah. Or help someone. Yeah, or, or, and, and, and help yourself and, t and take some time off or, or go and be with your spouse and or yeah. get a spouse or... or it's hard because it's your family. Whenever I, I've done that for periods of time and I'll feel amazing. Yes. And then there's some like, I, I'd call it like a, a primordial wound yeah. or something yeah. that pops up when I'm, I'm good and I'm like, I'm feeling great. Yes. And then I'm like, no, I've got to achieve. I've got to accomplish. Uh -huh. I've got to get back yes, to yes, work. Yes, yes, yeah. I, I have an insecurity. This, in, like, mine comes from insecurity. Yeah, sa same. same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. It's, it's just I don't want to. I I cannot be lazy. Like, I feel like someone else is working, or I have so much potential, or I could be doing something. Yes. And I'm wasting it here. I'm just wasting it, wasting it, wasting it. Emma Gilchrist said, like, that's such a left brain. He has like the left brain, right brain. Yeah. He said the left brain likes to think of time as something that can be wasted, like like money. Yeah. He's like, even just saying that you're wasting your time, don't even think of I'm making good use of my time. Don't even think like that. You shouldn't conceptualize it like a transaction. Yeah. There's something left brain and false about that. Not that the left brain is only false. Yes. But anyhow, that yeah, that's that's in me as well. Also, something that's in me is anytime I'm extremely happy, there's a doubt a thought that comes mm. in like an intrusive thought, mm. like it's actually OCD, like not OCD. Most people think is germophobia. That's obsessive compulsive personality. Mm. Disorder. That's a different OCD is like intrusive thoughts. So I have, uh, if something is going extremely well, I'll think like, oh yeah, but, but didn't you, 
what what if this happens and what yes. if that happens? Yes. And, and or what if that what if this is not even the case? Like yeah. this is not even real. Yeah. And I'm like, geez. But luckily I can manage that. But it just occurs. Yeah. Even when I was watching Dane Cook when I was 18. Yeah. I'm like, I, I remember I'm not supposed to find him funny because I'm studying comedy and like comedians supposedly don't like Dane Cook. Yeah. And then I'm like, no, he's funny. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, oh, I don't like that's an intrusive thought. Like, why do I find him funny? Like, you know, you're not supposed to find him funny. Yeah. I'm like sitting there judging him, but I'm like, isn't he funny? Yeah. Like, oh, you find him funny. You're, you're you're not even that high quality of a comedian. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Jeez, like, like it's so low. People I know who are brainy yeah. and like more heads and vats or yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. people, which I am and I think you yeah, might yeah, be yeah. too, we often get there's like an intelligence below the mind, below yeah. the analytical uh -huh. mind, where there's actually a book I'm reading called Power Versus Force by a guy named David Hawkins. And it's a little woo, but it, it's kind of like, you know, the field of- all the books you read. A lot are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, uh, yeah, it's either that or like pop physics. Like yeah, I'll read some sure. Carlo Rovelli, oh, but like, yeah, <laughs> like Helgoland or whatever. But like, um, so it talks about how the, the body, you know, like reflexology, this idea that like, like you can muscle test, which uh -huh. is somewhat of a woo idea. You might be able to connect it to somebody like Michael Levin's work that sure, like, right, right, right. you know, there's something about phenomenal, amazing. And I want to get into that because he's my favorite uh, toe yeah, theorist yeah, yeah. and he's not even a theoretical physicist. Oh my and my I have a crazy prediction yeah. actually with, with Michael Levin, which is that of all the people on your show, yeah. he's going to actually come up with a toe that like integrates possibly physics. And the reason I think that is because I follow him on Twitter and like other channels and he'll post, he's clearly interested in like interdisciplinary stuff. He's not just a biologist. Yeah. He'll like read about consciousness and he's even talked about it. I mean, you had him on yeah. with Joshua Bach and he yeah. taught, he's clearly like a very deep thinker. And I think, I think he doesn't talk openly about, I think he goes really deep and he only talks openly once he's like sure of a thing. Mm -hmm. And so, and I think he's so smart and I think the stuff he's doing is falsifiable, which is like some of the theorists, it's just so hard. It's like maybe it is falsifiable on some level, but it's like N of one or two who yeah. can like do actually peer review it or whatever. Yeah. And so I would go, if I were like, you know, putting my venture hat on, yeah. bet on any yeah. of the toe guests, yeah, it, yeah. Would be, it would be him. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would as well. But go, sorry, going, this is totally Where circuitous. Going, yeah. But going back to our- Power versus force. Power versus force. I think that there is, I think the body is way more intelligent than we realize. And if mm. you feel like doing something, that is insanely valuable. Uh -huh. And like, if you don't feel like doing something, and there's something about modern society that is so wildly- normative yes and like Wait, explain that you could get dissociated from your instincts it's mm. such a young you know we like even our like the schooling model is like based on the hessian system or whatever where you you have a bell that goes off because like you were supposed mm. to you know hit the farms or whatever mm. and it messes with your circadian rhythm as a kid because the teachers have to get home to their kids and it's yeah. this like bizarre and then you're sitting there in this desk and it's like if you were just doing what you felt like as a kid yeah you wouldn't be doing that. Yeah. And so there's something about that um, ripping away of your kind of intellectual mind uh, from like your core instincts on what you, you feel like doing yeah. that I think is very maladaptive yeah, for the yeah. average person. And specifically people like us yes, where it's yes. like there you get lost in your head. And I'm always like, I can't miss out on this opportunity or I can't I have to talk to this person or, or whatever. Or study this from, in my case, like just I have to be working, I have to be working, I have to be working. Totally. Yeah. And, and, and then often I'm like, sometimes I'll, I'll be like, you know what? I, uh, 
I actually feel like missing this thing. And the analytical mind is like, it makes no sense to miss this mm-hmm. thing. You can't miss this thing. And I want to say 95% of the time, the like visceral feel state thing is like, right. And it has this bizarre intelligence that's thinking on like a quant, it's thinking on a level that it far surpasses the analytical thing where it's like, you know, the analytical thing has like three factors. It's sort of, you know, considering and the, the body thing is clearly thinking on some level that the, the, the analytical mind can't even catch up to. And I realize this is, you can, you know, make this sort of a trite, you know, uh, Malcolm Gladwell blink point or whatever, that there's something about the gut that is somehow more intelligent. But, uh, but I think it's true. And I think it's specifically like for people like us, the, the easy things can be hard for people like us or whatever. It's like the everyday living is hard and the, the super abstract is like, like that's our escape or yeah. something. So firstly, I'm overemphasizing, I'm over-exaggerating how much I, I say inside, like I have to work, I have to work. I actually do love working. It's yeah. like a compulsion. Yeah. I just, I, I love to do it. It's almost like an itch, like I have to. Yes. So maybe that's what I mean when I say I have to, like it's, it's I love to. That's awesome. So I, I want yeah. to. In the same way that there's a meal in front and you just want to gorge. For me, by the way, that's, I'm abstemious. So like I'm great with self-restraint. Yes. Except for food. Ah. So I, I will fast for days yeah. because I know I want to overeat at some point. Yeah. And I know a buffet is coming up, so I'm going to fast. Uh, that's cool. Anyhow, you mentioned, you mentioned the, ah, okay. So for me, the, I found that there was a couple times where, you know, I'm just, I'm just tired and I'll be like, no, but you have to work. You have to. Mm-hmm. And there was like two times only in the past, like six months that I was like, you know what, let me just take the day off. I'll just relax at home, be with my wife. Yeah. And it was fantastic. Yeah. But the opportunities where you say like, no, you should do this. You should, for me, the ones that are correct are almost always ones that involve someone else. So for instance, uh, remember today I was like, oh, should I even come? Yeah, yeah, tomorrow? yeah. And then my wife's like, go do it, babe. Stop. Like, cause she knows I cancel all the time because of my sleep. Like yeah. my sleep won't work. And I'm like, I have to call, frantically call someone and say, I can't do this podcast. Like, I can't even think. Just, can we do this? Yeah, yeah. But every single time, invariably, when I do a podcast or I don't cancel or I go to the dinner with the person yeah. or go out to that meeting, that social gathering, that conference or whatever it may be, yeah. invariably, it's, it's positive. That's awesome. So w- mine is I like- I feel the same way. Privately, if there's something that I, like, I feel like, oh, I should be studying and I feel like I shouldn't, then I shouldn't. Okay. But if it's public, like, I feel like, oh, I don't think I should meet this person because I'm like, no, go meet. Yeah. Go out. Yeah. You will not regret it. I love that. So that's that. the way it works for me. There's like two classes. Yeah, I, I I think I'm similar. I'm a hermit. I am too. I'm a recluse. I'm a I'm a I'm. That's why. So one of the other guests on my on the channel I yeah. love is Richard Borchards. He's a mathematician because uh-huh. our personalities are so aligned. Uh-huh. He's self-deprecating, self-doubting, isolating. Uh-huh. Like he's working on some of the grandest problems. I'm I'm thinking, why don't you collaborate? Uh-huh. And he he just he just doesn't jive well with other people for whatever reason. I'm uh-huh. like, yeah, and the same. I'm the same way. Why don't I collaborate? Yeah, because it's it's difficult for me to. I, I just feel like we don't communicate in the same way, or or they don't share the same ideas, or I'm selfish. Yeah. So anyway, I'm I'm isolated like that. Well, it's funny. I think geniuses throughout history, and I don't know if either of us are geniuses, yeah, but you can't never yeah, be a exactly. self-proclaimed genius. I'm, just, I'm, I'm But 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 smart. Well, I think you're incredibly smart, but but um, maybe genius. But okay. uh, I'm definitely not. Sure, but sure. Uh, <laughs> but I think traditionally they're sort of um, on an individual selection level. Often they're they're kind of antisocial, or they're they're not 
they don't have, you know, they're not super selected for it. Like they're often asexual, they're recluses. And then on a group of uh, uh, selection level, they're, they're, they are selected for. And so this is actually, I was talking to this sort of interesting, like uh, evolutionary biologist. And he was saying in times of conflict where group evolutionary pressures are high, uh, geniuses are often more selected for hmm. uh, because maybe they'll, you know, come up with some theory that helps their group in wartime or whatever. Huh. And so, I, I don't know, it's yeah. ran, random theory, but like, I think it was like ta Taglieri, was this like uh, Italian uh, uh, sort of proto-physicist who uh, figured out the trajectory of the cannonball and yeah. helped his like, uh, uh, this was pre, you know, Italian unification, so pre-19th pre century, and, and helped his uh, little, little fiefdom or whatever win. And he was like this, just this crazy kind of eccentric. Uh -huh. So I don't know, I, fi I find that fascinating. I've, some of the smartest people I know are socially maladapted in, in some ways. And, and then even if it, like I would say for, for like me or you, like it, it doesn't, doesn't meet the eye or something. But, also but then there's like, there's like something underneath where I'm like, I'm like a little off. For yeah, sure. yeah. <laughs> and and it, I take pride in it. I it doesn't <laughs> mean, when you say socially unadaptive, it doesn't mean that you don't have social skills. Like that's completely yeah, different. Yeah. It means you just, you're introverted. You don't enjoy, yeah. you don't seek out. Totally. You're not gregarious. You're not temperamentally seeking out the company the comp and enjoying the company of others. Yeah, t totally, exactly. Or you can like run social skills and emulation or yeah, something yeah, yeah, i don't know i don't i don't know what it is but when you said about the school system and yeah. the hell so this to me reminded reminded me of why i think ai is or the effect of ai the impact of ai is underhyped. yes so think about overnight like chat gpt just came out yeah and firstly it's adoption like okay it's, it's like 100 million users and so on so yeah, on, whatever wild. whatever it is that's that's already cool mm -hmm. but then essays in school like, people can now write essays. The whole category, which is like 50% yeah. of what you do at school, yeah. the whole category of writing essays, now the teachers have to think, how do we even tell, how can we reevaluate yeah. this? And the school system is extremely slow moving uh -huh. because the government is extremely slow moving. So public institutions are slow moving. I don't know why. I don't know if it's inherent, but they are slow moving. So here's what's what I think. A sonic boom happens because something else can move so much quicker mm. than the other than what's around it, mm. and that's like creates a shockwave. Yeah. So AI will just only increase, increase, and the regulations for it yeah. either either to close down in certain areas, like yeah. res restrict Google, restrict or restrict a certain section of AI for whatever it may be, and then opening up. Maybe there's somewhere you mm -hmm. need to open up. Mm. That is so slow, and AI will just outcompete it in like one week already. Mm -hmm. It just decimated. Decimated is also like a false word. Decimated means to make 90%, because mm -hmm. it means only remove one ten. Okay. Yeah. So decimated is like decimate, decimate, decimate. Mm -hmm. The whole essay system, which is like 50% of the school yeah. in one week. And that's and that's just at its and that's just now. So what the heck will it be six months from now? What will it be three years from now? I think that because there's this slow moving institution that we're in which is this public institution and then there's the fast moving ai it will be so much more disruptive as i don't like that word so let's say so much more so much more groundbreaking so much more uh, much more effective and impactful because it's moving so quick relative to how quick the public institutions can move mm. do, you, do you think there's something fundamentally 
maybe uh, ineffable but unique about human art? Or do you think that's just a total no, fallacy? No, I do. You do? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is something I, I've only, this is a present deliberation. All of these are present deliberations. Yes. So like just my current thinking. Yeah, sure. I used to go to the museums and then you'd see on the wall, you'd see like that museum and, and then there'd be a card next to it. And it would say the person's life story. Mm. I, don't, I don't care about that. Like, I just want to look at the Mona Lisa or look at that or, or look at that. I, I don't care. I don't want to know about the art, the artist at all. Yeah. Now I, I've come to think that that's the most important part of the art piece. The mm. fact, like the history that put, went into it, the emotions that went into it, the reasons that went into it. This person was persecuted and came up with this. This person was the first to do so-and-so mm. in the context of a society that did so-and-so. Whereas AI art it's objectively can be objectively better when you just look at it like a proposition. Uh -huh. But in terms of the history that goes into it in physics, there's a notion called path dependence. Yeah. Meaning it actually doesn't, we tend to think like, okay, it's here, X and Y, uh -huh. and, and it's momentum and its position is so-and-so. Uh -huh. But in physics, its state can be different depending on if it came to there from this path uh -huh. versus uh -huh. if it came to here from this path or if it made too many curves and so on. So the history of what, produce the art to me is a part of the art mm. and the ai art is like it just appears there's no path yes you can't even know what the ai if by the way yeah the ai gets to the point where it can say i made the decisions to do so and so because of this and i weighted the choices because of this and i thought of this and i weighed this pro and con i would appreciate that art far more yeah hear that sound that's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. You, so, yeah. yeah, yeah, so that's so there's something about the, it's like the Cervantes quote, um, meaning lies in the journey and not at the end, at the end of the road or something. There's yeah. something about the process. process. Right, right. And I keep getting to that over and over, yes. like the process and the state. And by the way, in, in math and graph theory, you have nodes. and you, So these are nodes, like vertices, like points. Yes. And then you have edges. Yes. What connects them? There's a one-to-one -one duality between the edge and the nodes, mm. meaning you can flip them and you can look at it from a different perspective. So you can look at it in terms of the states or you can look at it in terms of the process. Mm. Do you think that the mind is a classical computer? Do you think it's a quantum computer? Do you think it's a hybrid classical quantum computer? Or do you think it is none of the above? Something fundamentally yeah, different. Yeah, yeah. Present deliberation is we, we're trying to 
we are so young with our words. Mm. Like, I think that some of these questions that me and you ask and we ponder over, we just are so inarticulate and rudimentary with the tools that we have. It would be like a kid mm. who, <laughs> who is four years old and is asking, but where does chocolate come from and where do babies come from and, and what is money and how does that work? <laughs> and it's just stressing itself out. And you're like, as an adult, like, relax. Like you cannot, those aren't even important questions, first of all. Right. Like, you think, why are we here? Existence and so on are the most important. Yeah. Maybe it's so trivial yeah. from like some other perspective. And we think like, all we think some of the Bernardo Castro's and the idealists and so on, they think yeah. all, all that is is consciousness. Yeah. I remember thinking, man, the, the physicalist side is so close-minded and, and they're so uncreative. Yeah. So let me go to the spiritualist side. And I find that, man, the mystics like are not mystical enough. All their major answer tends to uncreatively come down to its consciousness. I'm like, uh -huh. what, if, what if it's just, what if consciousness, consciousness is first thing, well, what the heck is it? But what if there's 12 other elements? Like mm. it's not even a, a dualist. Mm. It's like a 12-a-list or 157-a-list. I like the number one. 157. Why? There's various reasons. That's reasons. interesting. Yeah. yeah, the various reasons. Can we get into any of them or not? Off air. Off okay, air. okay. So cool. Any anyhow, so from our level, I, I wonder if it's like we think existence and why are we here and what is consciousness and a hard problem of consciousness. We think that these are the deepest, most profound, mm. most inexplicable problems, or or most, yes, most profound problems. But maybe it's so trivial, like as, as an adult to a kid, like chocolate, come, like you don't even need to concern yourself with that. Just relax, like mm. live your life. Mm. Yeah, mm. I, I often wonder that. So I have this phrase that I say mm -hmm. in, internally, which is like, the mystics aren't mystical enough. Mm -hmm. The mystics just come down to the same exact answer of, mm. of all of them. Mm -hmm. And so I'm so, almost all the time, I'm terribly disappointed when I investigate a toe. Mm. It's like go in with high hopes thinking like it's yeah. going to be the answer. Yeah. And then I'm like, is that what you're saying? Is that all that you're saying? Yeah. I thought that it was going to be much more vast and be mind blowing. Yeah. It's like all the same sort of mind. If it's mind blowing, it's mind blowing in the exact same way. Yeah. Well, first off, I fully agree with you in terms of larger kind of epistemology. And yes, it, it always gets, it's like the thinking itself is fascinating up until the conclusion. And then that yeah. sort of makes yeah. it more banal or something. I will say, I think a lot of the early quantum field theorists felt more mystical than a lot of the current scientists today. And I think about our epistemology and there is something, I don't necessarily believe the Penrose kind of orchestrated objective uh -huh. reduction thing. But it, that's it, creative, it, by the way. It is. I love, I love him for that, for the fact that he's willing to go out on a limb and connect, firstly, consciousness totally. to something quantum mechanical, then to something gravitical, like something gravity. Absolutely. And he was super criticized. He was kind of cast out yeah, at that point yeah, from yeah. the physics community. And, and I do find it interesting, something in that realm of like, the mind creates the classical kind of perception that we see. And, and, uh, we use sort of relativity to explain like cosmology or something, but maybe, maybe there's more ontological truth. Maybe quantum, the quantum stuff is, isn't just shut up and calculate uh -huh. in a set of mathematical formalisms, but is a descriptor of reality. And then you get into all sorts of weird philosophical yeah. questions because then it's like, okay, so time doesn't work the way we think it does mm. and all sorts of issues like that. But to me, that's such an exciting inroad. And then you you read about Niels Bohr or you read about, you know, Heisenberg 
you know, I'm reading the uh, Ravelli's Helgoland and, and I've read Beyond Physics, which is sort of, a, you know, a, a Heisenberg's own account of, of, of some of his work, but the more philosophical thinking behind it. And it's like, these guys were trippy philosophers, you know, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. they weren't like these, like, you know, I have the answer. Like mm -hmm. they were like sort of, it was this like constant inquiry process. And they were really touching at like, you know, what, what is, what is reality? And even, even Einstein, who he got in all these debates with the Copenhagen school, he was like, God, God doesn't play dice, yes, you know? Yes, and yes. they were thinking about like, yes. what is yes. the, the truth and what is reality? It wasn't just straight to like, you know, instrumentalizing the thing or like, I have this like, you know, little kitschy theory or yeah. whatever. So philosophy used to be integrated with physics, like the philosophers that you met, sorry, the physicists you mentioned yeah. were akin to philosophers. They're yes. About what is, what does this mean? Yes. And now in, in, Tim Maudlin was saying, he's a philosopher of physics. Yeah. He was on the show. He was saying, they don't teach you quantum theory in school. Like when you go to a class on quantum theory, yeah. for second year, third, even in your graduate school, yeah. graduate studies, it's not quantum theory, it's quantum mechanics, right. quantum field theory. Right. It's a theory not only gives you the math, but tells you what the, what is it describing? So Tim would say, every time he went to the lectures for any of the physics mm -hmm. classes, the best lecture would be the first one. Mm -hmm. Because they would give you this, they would sell you on mm -hmm. the course. And then after that, then you, then they abandon that. They're like, okay, here's Green's functions. Mm -hmm. And here's a, a Hilbert, a, here's a self-adjoint operator. And then you wonder, okay, well, well, what is that representing? And what does that mean? And he said, you, you would ask, he put his hands up and the professor would say, well, for that, you'd have to go to the philosophy department. He said, I thought physics was about what is. You're not, you're not telling me what we're doing. Mm. So yes, yeah, that, that is something that's lost. And also physicists are making metaphysical assumptions without knowing. So there's a concept that mm. I bring up frequently called enthymemes, meaning that there are statements with assumptions that are so so hidden, we don't realize we're making them. Mm. Okay, classic mm. example is the fish that doesn't understand us in water. Yes. And then I, That's I like think- David Foster Wall. Yeah, and Wittgenstein had comments that of something called clarificatory remarks, uh. which is those aspects of the world that are so simple and familiar that they remain, hid they remain hidden. Oh, that's fascinating. So, so Ed Witten had a theorem mm -hmm. with Weinberg that said, essentially it says that in three plus one quantum field theory, mm -hmm. so three space, one time, quantum field, three plus one D, quantum mm -hmm. field theory, there can be no graviton. Mm -hmm. Essentially says that. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like, well, what's the hope then? You can never integrate gravity with quantum field theory. Mm -hmm. And then the enthymeme, the hidden assumption that even was so subtle, Witten didn't make it, didn't make, make it explicit, didn't realize he was making mm -hmm. it, is that you're assuming the graviton is within the same space-time. Uh -huh. So what if there's another space-time associated with it? And right. that's where you get the idea of holography. Yeah. So that there's a quantum field theory happening on the boundary, yeah. but in a different space-time on the interior, there's gravity. You know what you're making me think? Is that like, it's maybe it's just super valuable to like work on your own fundamental epistemology. And that helps you create that. Like, I think about Eric Weinstein's like, you know, you have the observers and then you have like Fort 14 dimensions sort of above that and gravity sort of is the tether between the two. And it's like, I can say that theoretically. I don't really know what that means. Yeah. Is there a way to access those 14 dimensions? And maybe is, is, is there a way to change your state to like understand these things? That's and I, that would be like yeah, an yeah. Eastern sort of yeah, mystical yeah, thing, yeah. but like, I don't know. When it comes to questioning your epistemology or yeah. one's epistemology to mm -hmm. get to something true, I also wonder, like you said, Maybe our bodies are so much more intelligent and yeah. our bodies know. And we, we're trying to analyze like this 
like the monkey atop the elephant and we think we're in charge. Yeah. That's Ian McGilchrist talks about that in the, in the master and his emissary. Mm. And, and I also take that analogy a bit further. I think one of the, and this is a present deliberation. So mm. like I, I, it's something that I've only been thinking about for a couple of weeks. I think it's extreme. One of the worst philosophies of our time yeah. is like that book, the subtle art of not giving an F yeah. where you shouldn't care what other people think. Yeah. I think, other people are way smarter than you. Totally. I put, on, I put a huge, <laughs> huge emphasis on other people. Much like if you trust your body is smarter. And so I was thinking, someone was saying, I was speaking with someone in the internal toe team and he was saying, oh boy. He was saying that, oh yeah, but you should, people should, the world shouldn't be like that. Something like that. Like the world shouldn't be like that. Then I'm like, how, you think you have an ideal in your head? Like you think your ideal is better than what is? Like I often, I almost always think that, but then if I think deeply enough, like I'm like, well, why do we even shake hands? Why do we bow? Why do we, do we yeah. have to have niceties? Maybe a world without that would be way worse. Like you think you're smarter than the entire calculation of the world? Yeah. Yeah. Right, right, right. Like, like uh, take into account what other people think. If yeah. other people are not liking what you're doing, yeah. modify it. It doesn't mean supplicate. Totally. It doesn't mean be, be weak and indecisive. Yeah. It just means like listen to what other people are saying incorporate even the fact that we're not like this yeah yeah, hey, man, yeah what's up yeah like, we just know because we just know. like you would convention is, yeah. is there for a reason or maybe you'd be closer but i, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I realize it <laughs> yeah yeah and it would just be so subtle and our bodies do it because we care and i think the people who totally. say don't care about what other people think maybe you i think you should care more than anyone else like if you're thinking that yes I think your family would say, I, I think, John, I think you should be caring a little bit more about what we think. Yeah. Well, that, that, that kind of sums up like my departure from like the Sam Harris crowd oh. where it felt like he was like really throwing the baby out with the bathwater and just saying all of these tenets of like Western civilization, which re religion is kind of an endemic part of, yeah. we can reconstruct through rationality now. And to me, that leads to like, effective altruism, utilitarian yes, yes. thought, yeah. which are predicated on this idea that like people are sort of interoperable cogs and this mm -hmm. sort of, you can, you know, systems thought yeah. can sort of like design our, you use design principles and, you know, we'll figure it out. And like, th that feels wrong to me, <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm much more of a fan of like Lindy, you know, this idea that like, um, things have survived in civilization, like formalities, convention, mm -hmm. tradition, uh, because it's every generation's job to kill off bad ideas. And so the Lindy ideas, the, the, basically the, mm -hmm. the current age of something actually predicts its future expected age uh -huh. and the value of it. And I, I just think that's like a beautiful sort of yeah. principle. Yeah, so in probability, we say like, there's no such thing as a hot hand or like if you flip a coin, if it's tails five times in a row doesn't mean it's going to be heads mm -hmm. but this is the opposite this is saying like look if it's tails the fact that it's historically been tails or su historically been successful means yes. it's more likely to be successful than us than something else that's new i i think so yeah yeah again present deliberation i've also been thinking about effective altruism yes and i don't i when i hear i remember hearing that the the five the eight the eight-year-old kurt mm -hmm. up until 28-year-old Kurt, let's say, yeah. would completely be like, yeah, effective altruism and utilitarianism and rational morality. Right. And now I just see so many problems. Like, how do you solve this? How do you solve that? How do you solve this, 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 this? And right. effective, I don't believe when someone's like, I'm an, an effective altruist. I just don't believe you. I, I don't, don't either. believe that you, if you believe yourself to be a good person, I, I just don't believe you. I'm sorry. Like, I agree with that. Like, I, I totally, you have to be, I think, 
And this is you part of Christianity. You have to a piece of ish. You are a piece of yeah, ish. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you are so motivated by trying to seem good and you're egocentric yes. and I'm narcissistic and I'm insecure yes. and I am I'm selfish and right. I, I'm just rotten. And, and it's it's obviously, you can get self-flagellating about it. And I, I would look at movies where some of the people like self-flagellating and most people are like, oh, that's the, yeah. it's wrong. I'm like, that's like what we all should be doing. Like if you, have you taken yourself it's, seriously it's totally. enough? Yeah, no, but acknowledging your own depravity is a very powerful thing. And I, I think about a, a lot of, not to bash baby boomers, but I think about like the, the baby boomer mentality and a lot of it just felt like virtue signal. Like utilitarianism is wildly effective in the political sense. It's super charismatic. Uh -huh. Like you think about like Bill Gates, I'm not, I, don't, I, I go back and forth on like mm -hmm. what his deal is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think he's more sort of ruthless than meets the eye. Would be my would be my guess. Like like it's a guise to attain power Correct. in a different sense because you can political power is much more of a weight than than the dollar or per, or per unit time or effort or yes yeah totally yeah. it's like a it's like its own will to power and it's the mm -hmm. most charismatic. And it could be unconscious will to power. Too. Yeah, and it, it could be totally unconscious. But yeah, like the, the Sam Bankman Fried uh, Freed FTX thing or whatever, yeah. where you know it's like. You have to be the most moral person. Like you're, you're the only way to be hyper capitalist is to be hyper idealistic, hyper hyper philanthropist, yeah. and and hyper. You have to be somehow Gandhi and you know uh, uh, John D Rockefeller at the same time. Uh -huh. It's this bizarre thing, yeah. and so like the only way to be that ruthless is to like hide it in this sort of. And I think I think about that sort of with respect to Marxism and stuff. Like, like St Stalin is like. I think about this, like Stalin's, you, we think of Hitler is still the yeah. proverbial like worst person in the world. Yeah. Stalin is definitely a bad person, but he's not thought of it's in like as bad terms yeah. as, as Hitler. And, and, and I think that's because fascism is overt yes. and Marxism is covert. Uh -huh. And so there's something about the utilitarianism thing where like you can, you can really hide like the most dangerous ideas in the name of like sort of nominal equality. Okay, I like yeah. That. So I think, like you said, being suspect of anybody that doesn't acknowledge their own depravity. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Is. So for instance, I was this years ago, I remember when I started to have this practice of anytime I find myself saying, I'm like, oh, I love myself. I'm doing so such a, I'm doing such a good thing for this person. I question myself. I'm like, how is this from laziness? How is this from selfishness or or deceit in yes. some way, yes. or malice. Okay, so I was washing the dishes, and then I was like, because uh, my, my my sister came home, I started washing the dishes. I'm like, yeah, yeah, because because you know why I'm doing this? Because I don't want her to come home to a dirty home, and I wanted. Mm. To, and then I realized, no, I'm washing the dishes because I want her to see that I do chores, so that she can do the majority of these other chores. Like I I just analyzed myself. I'm like, oh piece of ish like you and then there's yeah. other reasons like so i'm pouring water for someone else first yeah why because like oh no i'm such a gracious host yeah. but there was something else there i've forgotten the reason but it's like i want to appear gracious or yeah i wanted I, I thought there was like a a bit of lint in it so i'm like giving it to you i forgot what it was totally but, but often like, and i have this list i catalog anytime i come yes. up with one just so that i could remind myself like oh, I love do not that. think that you're benevolent most of the time I love that. I, that's awesome, man. That's really cool. Yeah, I wish I could bring. I, I don't have the list, but I have this list of of personal sins. Then I have a list of confabulations where I 
think that I, well, we can talk about that. Yeah, no, you you conflate. I do this all the time. It's like I'm doing something that's nominally like looks really good. Like I'm a super moral person, but it's like, why are you really doing that? Here's something interesting. Yeah. Okay. Here's here's a, a, this is a thought that present deliberation again. Yeah. Just just mind, okay, mind blows. The greatest gift giving is anonymous. Yeah. Okay. okay, So so that to me seems, it doesn't, it doesn't seem self-evidence, but it seems plausible Mm -hmm. at least. And there's almost many, almost all the religions tend to agree on that. Totally. So maybe, you know how there are proofs of God and then there are problems. Mm -hmm. I think you can probably prove God for yourself, to yourself personally. But I think the reason there doesn't exist a proof of God is that existence itself is is such a gift. Like this is a gift. This is a gift. Talking to you is a gift. This is a gift. Just breathing is a gift. Somehow even suffering is a gift, which is so controversial. Yeah. Someone said that the the God wouldn't sentence the devil to die in, for eternity because that's a gift. Even even being alive and suffering is more of a gift than not existing. I love that. So somehow existence itself is a gift, and the greatest gift of all is given anonymously. Uh. So God by nature has designed this such that you cannot prove He did it uh. because if you prove He did it, that's like finding you you donate it and you're like I did it anonymously, but you find the receipt somewhere. Uh. So by its nature, you have to come to the conclusion mm. because it's such a gift. It's the greatest gift. I gave it to you anonymously. Mm. You don't. Even, you can curse my name, and I will still give you life. That's amazing. I will still give Sam Harris the best yeah. life. Even, <laughs> I was just even, thinking that when you said that. Even if he curses me and gets many people riled up and causes suffering, I'm sorry. You're, you're still given existence. Yeah. And I will not have. I will not come down from the clouds and say I, and announce myself. And even that, you can doubt. So no matter what, I will give you the gift of a doubting, of doubting too. Mm. That's amazing. Yeah, that, like God is lacks God's, ego. Yeah, so, lacks yeah. so much ego that he made it. He contrived this in such a way that you cannot prove him because to prove him would be that this gift was not given anonymously, uh, and that's the greatest gift of all. That's beautiful. Do, Present deliberation. That's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. At all, all of this. Do you think? Um, and this is getting into more mystical thought, but like kind of the Alan yeah, Watts. This was not more. This was not mystical already. Yeah. I, I love. I love this because it's. I think. Also, you get into some of this stuff in the show, but I like, I think it'll show parts of you where, yeah, you, sure, you know, sure. yeah. But uh, Alan, Watts. Alan Watts, like, is there something about, are we sort of fractals of a larger universe? Sort of, are we a way for God to observe it, him or her itself? And is there something about the human, the individual human, that is a sort of a pinched node or a, you know, of a fractal of something much larger? Or is, am I trying to yeah, think in too yeah. perfect of Th- terms? There, there are so many words that echo that, like like the eye that that we see through is the way that God sees us, or the same eye. So uh-huh. I think Meister Eckhart said that. Oh, and cool. Then, and then Schopenhauer said that we're all eyes of the same tree that are just branched off. Uh-huh. And, and I, I tend to think... I used to like those ideas and I still like them. They're fun. But now I see that the I'm so countercultural and I, I formulate opinions based on being the devil's advocate. Yeah. So I see it now as a fad to think so mystically. Yes. And I'm like, wow, it's come to the point where the realist position yes. is, is the controversial one. Yeah. And then I wonder... This is something I brought up to Wolfgang. So we tend to think in terms of a hierarchy, like there's too much of a literal interpretation of the Bible and, and religious stories and so on. Mm. And then you can get a bit esoteric and then much more mystical. Mm. 
And we, we tend to think the bottom is the literal, but I wonder how much more, can you go down? Maybe it's not that we need to go up or maybe it's both, but is there something that's more literal than the literal? Is there something that's more real than the real? Mm. And this is where Jonathan Pajot like, gave me an insight where he said that the blades of grass in heaven are, are, so, are too sharp for man. I just thought, oh man, like I can think about that for, well, I will be thinking about that for months and months. <laughs> that's interesting because the way that I'm, I don't... I'm so influenced by the Eastern thought, the Vedic tradition, which mm. says that this is somehow illusory. There's uh, this uh, people love, and I think illus the the tendency for us to love illusoriness mm. is actually a self-loathing. Yeah, I don't think that it's a search for knowledge. I don't. I also don't think I'm a truth seeker. I'm not a truth seeker. I yeah, I, I think I'm a selfish person who's just curious. Yeah, and just can't help himself here and there. And I'm and I'm craven, and I'm ugly, and I'm not courageous and I'm, a, and, and I'm an invertebrate and gutless like like I'm a coward <laughs> I, I am because I know what I'm, I'm afraid of there's some truths that that are frightening and I know that I think the fact that you recognize that shows that it's your fate that you are gonna not be that like yeah, you're well, working against it hopefully because most people never recognize there was like a year the past year or so where there was so much like this Speaking about these subjects yes. would provoke so much anxiety in me. It would it'd be so tough to do. I had yeah. to back off from the UFO subject for the same reason. UFO subject is yeah. tough. Yeah, geez, geez. Like if you think about the possibilities, like truly, truly, truly think about them, uh -huh. it, can, it can put you into some dark, dark places that it seems inescapable. You can put yourself into a place that's... I don't think that's true, but you can convince yourself temporarily mm -hmm. that you're in a place that's inescapable. Mm -hmm. I do think that there's something like God is always with you. And I'm, I say this as someone who's like, I'm not mm -hmm. even a believer. I'm like someone who's entertains believing or hopes to believe, but also hopes to not believe. Like if I pray, like it's praying for faith, but also not faith. Mm. Like I'm afraid of God. Mm. I'm extremely afraid of what it means that God exists. Mm. I'm extremely afraid of what it means that God doesn't exist. <laughs> I'm like, I'm fearful at both ends. And, and, well, yeah. Anyhow, so I don't think God ever, if, so these are all, if there's a God, but by the way, even that statement is like, that's a controversial statement. I can get to why, but, mm -hmm. yeah, well, anyway, that God will never leave you. Like you, you can see some, sometimes we have these stories, we, we listen to songs like I'm alone and so on and so on. I don't think you're ever, ever alone. Mm. I think there's always hope. Mm. There's always hope. Either ask for it, like, especially for psychological, like for being physically tortured and so on, or yeah. you don't have enough money and you pray and then you say, well, God doesn't help because I'm not any richer or any less in torment and so on. That's different than psychological torment. Mm -hmm. I think for psycho, for, I think psychologically prayer is super, super helpful, at least for a large subset of people. Fully agree. And, and God answers or God listens. And, and you can even pray for God if you're helping. Can you show me how you're helping? Like help me recognize that you're helping. Yes. Yes. And I think about the myth of Pandora's box and we got all these sort yeah. of horrible maladies that's that the plague the earth. Channel. There you go, Pandora's box. Yeah, yeah, that's what it feels like, man. Yes, but the, but the one thing that we, we have is we always have hope. You know, yeah. that was the thing in the box. Oh, man. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. That's interesting. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Ro Roseanne, the comedian, she's like, I hate, hate hope. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And I know so many. I used to be like that too. Like, mm. why would you ever give someone hope? Because you're disappointed. I'd say rather get extremely used, callous yourself to the disappointment. Hope is wonderful. It's yes. great to look forward and be excited. I, I love the thrill of looking up to something more than I dislike getting disappointed by that. Yes. 
Yes. So that is I think, put out your hand and trust, even if you're going to get hurt. Yes. And just and just feel like, okay, you know what? It's better to put my hand out and trust, even if I've been hurt before and be like, please, please, please don't hurt me. Please don't hurt me. I'm going to yeah. trust you. Yeah. Actually, that's another, there's a, there's a concept called collective illusions uh-huh. that I think is so integral to the whole stigma of UFOs. Collective illusions are behaviors that we engage in publicly that contradict our private, sorry, that contradict our privately held beliefs because we think you think the same. Because if for said another way, we act in a certain way in public because I think that you agree with that behavior or believe that same belief, mm. but we actually all have some other shared belief privately. So for instance, in the 1960s, most Southerners were against segregation, mm-hmm. but they thought their neighbors were for it. So they're like, I'm for it. Mm-hmm. And then everyone just became mm-hmm. for it. Mm-hmm. So it's like this collective illusion. Yes, And then... Another one is the trustworthiness of society. We think of ourselves as untrust. We think society is untrustworthy, but yeah. it turns out there are tests. Most people are fairly trustworthy. It's something yeah. like 40, 60% of people give deception. Mm. So 40% of people are honest, mm. something like that. And some, some tests where you put money down and, or like a wallet and, and you see if they return it and so on. And another collective illusion, maybe the stigma. We think there's a stigma. Mm-hmm. This is my. This is why I contend the idea that we have a stigma in UFO, mm. ufology. I don't think we have a stigma problem. I think we have a cowardice problem. Yeah. Because the professor, many math and physics professors come to me after a show about math and physics and will be like, okay, now that we've talked about that, like, what do you think is going on with UFO? <laughs> and like, these are like, I don't want to give, but they, I don't want to give it away because these are people who've give, who have trust lo- in you. Trust and, and, and awards and so on. These aren't just. Sure, sure, sure people from the periphery. Yep. And additionally, the 2017 article on UFOs, mm. that was, people were like, I want to know more. I want to know more. We think there's a stigma, so we don't talk about it. But actually, privately, everyone wants to talk about it. Yeah. So it's a collective illusion that there's a stigma. Another collective illusion is that we think, is that, is that wealth and wealth and status is what matters most. So we think that to other people, wealth and status matter most. Mm. But it, it turns out when you, Ask people in surveys, private surveys, and you can check for honesty and also look at how they behave. They value family and safety and security and so on. And we all tend to agree on this privately. Mm-hmm. And then this research by this guy named Todd Rose said collective illusions are so deleterious to society, not just in their current generation, but mm. mainly to the next, because the lies of this generation become the truths of the next. Uh. So now kids hear oh, what people value is wealth and status. So now they're on Instagram and that's what they see. Uh, Even though it's based on this sand, it's pillars uh, of sand. Yeah, they it, they really beget their own reality. And yeah, I, yeah. And I think, it, yeah, like this Timor Quran, like pre- preference falsification where you, uh-huh. you know. That's exactly, that's, that's another way of saying it. Right? You sort of say you want something out of virtue or, or out of pure mimesis of the people you're sort mm-hmm. of around. And then, and then underneath it, you, you, you definitely don't. And I agree, either that becomes this cargo cult belief system for the next generation, or it, because it is sort of somewhat illusory and, and kind of inauthentic on an individual level, at least, and concealed, uh, it, it sort of comes crashing down quickly and it, and it sort of reverses. And I wonder if that's the case with the UFO thing where, I mean, that's news to me and incredible to hear that they're like top academics who are like privately interested in this. Uh, and maybe if reality on some level is sort of a collective illusion and we are sort of begetting a lot of what we see, you know, with, with our belief systems, there's this concept, sort of this like occult concept of like the egregore and it's like a self-manifesting thought. Mm-hmm. And so I think of, I think of the UFO 
as like a possible self manifest. Like it's like collectively, it feels like we are we are just moving in that in that sort of d- direction. And and Jung would say that yeah. it, it represents. I was about to say that the 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 mandala, the the Sanskrit cycle of uh, uh, symbol of psychic completeness. Uh-huh. And so maybe there's a way in which, and I think about that this is going to get into really trippy, weird territory. But I think about. Um, our UFO experiences. And if you if you read a lot of them from the Edgar Mitchell Foundation, they have like 5,000 abduction cases. It's They occur in sort of like a dreamlike state. Mm. And I think it's possibly like a, there's, a, there's definitely connection there with like remote viewing, which also is obviously very contested. Mm. But maybe you are, maybe the brain is somewhat like a quantum system, mm. which there is, you know, a uh, uh, temporal non-locality and, and maybe quantum systems can send information back in time. Mm. And maybe you are actually pr- accessing a future mm. memory state and it's sort of pre-memory and sort of people maybe with strength and caudate and patamens mm. or whatever and their basal ganglia who are, you know, have an affinity for remote viewing can do this. And you are witnessing a thing that has a proto-architecture to it that is fundamentally impossible to sort of understand. And you are applying kind of the closest um, low-level meme based on media and sort of the collective onto the thing. And it the thing is affecting you in a way that causes the thing to actually manifest. Uh, 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 uh. And and uh, it's a closed loop. It's a it's a it's exactly a time loop. And like the, the Carl Jung, uh, an example of a uh, time loop is Carl Jung had this patient who was super inaccessible, mm-hmm. hyper rationalist. As you know, Carl Jung was not mm-hmm. rationalist mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. She has a dream of a scarab beetle that is uh, this uh, this golden scarab beetle that is gifted to her. This is necklace. And it sort of is this beautiful, her heart opens up and it's sort of this epiphany and she doesn't know why it represents this in the dream. But she goes to, you know, uh, therapy with with Jung and she says, you know, uh, I, I don't know what this dream means. You know, this this is all sort of gobbledygook. This doesn't make any sense. And as she's saying this, he sees a scarab beetle on the window. Mm-hmm. So like a live scarab beetle come down on the windowsill. And he sees the scarab beetle and he like takes the scarab beetle and he gives it to her as a gift. That to me is a causal loop because she had a pre-memory mm-hmm. of something that, sh- that would happen to her. But that pre-memory required the thing to self-manifest mm-hmm. because it changed her attentional pattern and his attentional pattern in a way that caused the thing to actually happen. Mm-hmm. And so I think there might be something around that with the alien thing uh-huh. where it could be this, this future, really transformative, exciting thing. You could be ascending to, to another sort of level so at some does point. Does that mean through your intention, you can make the UFOs not appear? So for instance, if you're like, I don't think these are good, mm-hmm. like the dark forest idea, and you're like, you know what? Let me place my attention elsewhere. Does that mean that it won't manifest? Or if sufficient, if there's a sufficient amount of people who believe in it, then it will occur for everyone. I I think so. Yeah, that that would be my heretical and somewhat scientifically baseless (laughs) belief. Is that collectively we have much more kind of thought power in terms of manifesting things than people Mm -hmm. people sort of realize Mm -hmm. and i'm just i'm not a sort of cartesian dualist i like i I do think that that Uh at some point in the future i think of the whole field of parapsychology right and it's this 
it's full of, you know, the snake oil salesmen and, and, you know, not super rigorous thought or whatever. But think about how much money has been spent on it. $30 million, $40 million. How, how much do we spend on a, on a particle accelerator? Yeah, exactly. You know, so it's like... That's something else that I think about is you, yeah. we, you get people who contemn other scientists and, and, be, and, and be snide and, and mm -hmm. so on. When they'll say, yeah, there's no evidence for so-and-so. And I'll ask them, have you seen the, the work of Rupert Sheldrake? They'll be like, no, uh, or I've heard of it. Have you seen the Bigelow Institute's work? No. Have you seen Dean Radin's? Mm -hmm. Have you seen seen Julie Beschel's or mm -hmm. Daryl Bem's? Mm -hmm. And then they're like, no. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the same feeling I have when I ask someone about a toe. And I'm like, why do you think your toe is supreme? Have you seen, have you looked into Chris Langes? Yeah. Have you looked into Eric Weinstein's or have mm -hmm. you looked into Lisey's or White's? I was speaking to Brian Greene. He, he's a string theorist, mm -hmm. presumably working on physics. Mm -hmm. This is something that, oh, I would love to talk about. Mm -hmm. And he, I asked him like, okay, have you looked into Wolfram's theory? He's like, no, I don't like, it's been out for a couple of years, yeah. there are papers. Yeah. He's like, no, you know, I have, I'm like, I don't buy that you don't have the time, man. Yeah. I buy that you don't have the interest. That's what I, that's what I think it is. You're not interested in it because you think you have the answer, but don't pretend you're searching for physics when we're starving for alternatives and mm. you won't look in the same way that people are like, no, 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 I'm, I'm this hyper-rationalist and, and I've, I've researched evidence and it's clear there is no such thing as parapsychology. Have you researched any of the people that I've mentioned? Yeah. Maybe a curse. If it was me, yeah. I would spend two weeks just going into their papers. Yeah. And if I had questions, like, oh, I think there are some fundamental flaws in how they did this analysis. Yeah. I would contact the author. Totally. So I would say, like, they may say, yeah, I read their studies. I'm like, but, but there are flaws. Did you contact Rupert Sheldrake and ask him about it? No. I'm like, is that, are you truly interested in the subject? Or are you just saying that you're, are you just yeah. trying to, put on some face so that you can be a member of this erudite cohort of ur urbane sophisticates. Yeah. It's, it's exactly, it's your, it's your carrying card in a certain social milieu. Yeah. Like they don't want to lose that card for, of their, of their membership of the of enlightened intelligentsia. To exactly. That's what they care about. Exactly. I, I have a good friend who, um, helped run the Princeton parapsychology lab called pair. And he, he has an experiment that I always present to skeptics where, and I'll, I'll say it right now. And if you can, and, and I think there's, there's a lot of evidence here. And if you can find something that debunks this, sure. then I would, I would love to hear it. Like, I always say that, like, like, please like debunk this, like that would be fantastic. And it's this idea of a random event generator. Oh, right, right. So you have a, uh, basically a binary computer. So it's super simple computer just creates ones and zeros. You have a graphical interface that shows you know, one, zero, mm -hmm. one, zero. So it's like basically like a, you know, transistor level, like what's happening. And you are tethering that to call it like radioactive isotope decay or like a photon mm -hmm. bouncing around a little bot, like something that's sort of provably thought of as random and yeah. in, in quantum mechanics. And over a long enough time scale, that should be like flipping a coin, right? Like you should get over a long enough time scale and, you know, large enough sample size, you should get with some expected standard deviation, you should get basically the same amount of ones as you do zeros. And he finds that in a statistically significant way, uh, people's sort of, you know, Z-score distribution uh, uh, belies probability based on their intention going in, in terms of, the, you know, if you say, you go into the thing and you say, I want more ones to show up on the graphical interface than zeros, that that over a long time scale 
in a statistically significant way beyond the standard deviation will will occur. And so I think that's fascinating. Like to me, if that if that is real, uh, and, and Dean Radin has actually a, a lot of evidence around this and a data set around it, um, that's hard to argue with. Yeah. And then at that point, yeah, like maybe that's like a weak interaction, right? That's not like manifesting a UFO on this table, but that should break your model of reality or at least should make you ask questions mm-hmm. about the sort of dualist materialist worldview. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think the, the materialist worldview is dualist, by the way. I think it's just, it's monist mm. of material. And they mm. just think there's material. That's a way better, that's funny. I, whenever I say that, there's some cognitive dissonance yeah, yeah, yeah. and you are saying it way better now. It's a monist of material. Your mind is material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yes, like the dual, Cartesian dualism would be like actually a bifurcation mm. where God and the mind exist separately yeah. and then there's material yeah. and material monism is the mind is just material. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. right, sorry. Well, so, thank you for cur- oh, updating no, 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 me. No, yeah, yeah. No, no problem. There's another study that I heard about and I like to look into. And by the way, I'm not saying that that Julie Beschel, I believe her name is, and Daryl mm-hmm. Bam and, and Rupert Sheldrake and so on have great studies. I don't know if they have ho- horrible studies or great studies. Yeah. I haven't looked into it. Yeah. That's why I remain undecided. Yep. But I know people who are decided who haven't looked into it. That's mm. why I was, that's what my my diatribe was about. Mm. Okay, so there's, <clears throat> no, I've forgotten my place. Ah, yes, there's another random number generator study where mm. they place random number generators across the earth in different places. Mm. I was like, okay, well, why? Are you measuring earthquakes? I don't, I don't know what they're mm. measuring at, at the time. But in different key locations across the earth. I, I think it's randomly generated to the ran, the places that they put them in. Yeah. And it turns out that before major events like the World Cup yeah. or even horrible events like yeah. 9-11, yeah. just a few minutes prior or a few hours prior, it then statistically deviates from randomness. I've seen this project. Yeah, what is it called? It's called the Global Consciousness yes. Project. Right, right, right. And the reason I think it's bullshit is I think it, it incidentally proves parapsychology but they also, they did the World Cup, they did 9-11, they did things like that. And then they also did like the death of Bob John, who ran the pair lab, the Princeton Parapsychology Lab. And that showed this crazy Z-score. Yeah. And so to me, that shows, it's a classic experimenter effect, which is the problem with parapsychology and, and studying it within the scientific paradigm. And it's why you end up in this tautological loop, uh-huh. because there are always experimenter effects. So in that case you're conflating the experimenter's beliefs about Bob John, where he's disproportionately impactful in their life Mm -hmm. um, at the level of the World Cup for them. Like he's more important to them than the World Cup. So like the Z-score for Bob John is gonna be like this, you know, off the charts thing or whatever. And it's almost impossible to de-conflate those things. And so if you get a skeptic like Michael Shermer or James Randi present at one of these random event generator experiments, it's gonna affect the experiment. So the skepticism, science is a a priori skepticism, like Francis Mm -hmm. Bacon. Mm -hmm. And if you come into this experiment skeptical, it might actually affect the results. Mm -hmm. So the whole issue with parapsychology kind of a priori and studying it scientifically is it kind of requires a priori buy-in or belief, which is a bizarre, that's an epistemological paradigm shift. That's not a scientific paradigm shift. That's tough. That's tough to investigate scientifically. Though. It's really tough to investigate scientifically. I was speaking with Leslie Keen about this, who studies near-death experiences and also paranormal yeah. experiences. And she was saying that she's been to some seance. I don't know what it's called. Some place where there's a table and you speak to the dead and there's channel physical mediumship, I believe she called it. Uh-huh. And she said that you can't have someone who's skeptical in there. It won't work. Uh-huh. And that at one point someone was... She, she said that? Yes. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, <gasps> but but then also the the skeptic who hears that is like, how convenient. They're totally right. But I, so can you not film it? Right. Is it is that the the act of the camera was the presence of the camera considered a skeptical totally. person or skeptical totally. state? Well, I I believe. I mean, yeah. Again, again, I'm on that side. But it like you read um, this anthropologist, 19th century guy named J.G. Frazier, and he wrote a book called The, the Golden Bough. And he talks about how um, their pr sort of primitive Aboriginal uh, societies would constantly use two forms of magic, uh, uh, homeopathic and sympathetic magic. So one is um, sort of using the likeness of some person to affect them. So it's like voodoo stuff or whatever. Uh, don't try any of this at home, please. <laughs> and then the other is like, uh, like, like hair, teeth and nail. Like, like that's, I think, uh, sympathetic magic or whatever is like you use actually like Okay. So something from the person and you can affect them, right? And he would talk about how like these people would be introduced to sort of enlightenment thought and the rituals would systematically lose their power. Mm. And then I, I think about, and, and Jack Parsons read this book and he, he is, this is a fa fascinating quote to me. He goes, I think it, this book convinced me that science is a form of magic and magic is not a form of science. Mm. And so the proto layer is actually belief-based and science-based. And there's actually a French author named uh, Br Bruno Latour who talks about the belief consensus in the scientific laboratory affecting mm. the experiments that are actually done. And so it's this question of like, is science like uh, an act of creation or is it an act of discovery? Are you, are you, you know, are you Michelangelo sort of, um, out of the marble, mm -hmm. you are you are creating David or whatever. You're, you're excising David rather, mm -hmm. but the David is already there pre-excision. Yeah. Or are you uh, engaging in a godly act of creation? And mm -hmm. I would say the latter, but mm -hmm. I, I think that's a little heretical in today's time. Interesting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, okay, real quick, because I know you got to go soon. Um, the weird aerial objects. Do you have any theory? <laughs> mm. Not that I can articulate. Okay. Um, yeah, fair enough. I, I might be in a similar camp, actually. My, um, Michael Levin. Yeah, Levin. Yeah. Levin, sorry. His work fascinates me. Yeah. Um, and do you think that there's any... So what, what fascinates me about it is that traditionally we've thought... We've sort of been like DNA yeah. reductionists. Yeah. And it's like it's just the DNA that dictates morphology. And it's this idea, right, tell me if I'm botching this, but that sort of gap junctions or intracellular communications and, and, and voltage-gated ion channels yeah. Yeah. are somehow the software and the DNA is kind of the hardware. Yeah. And so to me, that's fascinating because it, there's this like orthogonal or other layer to like our morphology that like, like what's creating that? What's dictating that to form the human body in the first place? Yeah. Because I think about like if, if it's not encoded in our DNA, if you can change the voltage gates of like a tadpole, a severed arm of a tadpole and create like a chimeric two-headed tadpole, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then like what's dictating mm -hmm. the initial form of the tadpole? Oh, oh, uh -huh, uh -huh. Like isn't that an important question? Is it the EM field of the earth? Are we living in a supercomputer? I see, I see. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like that feels like a super important kind of metaphysical question that like his work makes you ask yeah i don't know as far as i know it's like there's an there's a dna 
template mm -hmm. and then there's an electrical template that goes along. So if you modify the heads, mm -hmm. then the future generations will develop those heads as well. Yes. So it's like they carry that. that it's like they carry DNA, some DNA information and some electrical information. Mm. That, that's what it seems like to me. So if you modify one, then it starts to get the modified version of one, but not the other. Would he say though that the epigenetic changes that are happening locally, presumably from the like electrical changes, mm -hmm that that accounts for the inheritance? Or would he say the electrical inheritance is like oh, a different inheritance I, level? I don't, I don't know, I, I see it as the electrical is different. Okay, so I, I, I read that the same way. Yeah. And then it's like, to me that's like, it's almost an update on like Sheldrake's morphic fields. Mm -hmm. Because to me morphic fields is like awesome in terms of like the empirical rigor that he would, he, you know, I think the experiments were real where there are learned traits between generations that yeah. aren't necessarily due to natural selection. But like he never came up with, the mechanism was always unclear. What, yeah. wh wh where are the things being stored? Where's the information being stored? Uh -huh. And so I guess the question to me would be like, how, how, is, it, how is electricity sort of, yeah. how do the offspring sort of learn the electricity? Yeah. I know. And is there more than just electricity? Like right now we have a few forces. Is there more than just the three or the four? And how is, why is the form created in the first place? Like why, why are we hominid forms? You, you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hi, Wolfgang, this is Kurt. Oh yeah, Kurt. Uh, what time do you think you can be ready for dinner? I can be there at 6.50. So Wolfgang would say that this world is real. Yeah. It's the corporeal world. Mm -hmm. It's real mm -hmm. rather than it being illusory. So when you feel and when you, you're in your body, this is real. It's yeah. corporeal. This is real. The solidity of this is real and it's not illusory because mm -hmm. there's space between the atoms and so on. Then he says physics, what physics does is it takes an object, let's call this object X, and creates a different object called SX and studies that. Mm -hmm. So it studies a different sort of object. And then it confuses Sx or S sub X with X. Mm. And then he says, so there's a corporeal world. And he doesn't like to put, yes, he likes to make diagrams. So let's call that the corporeal world where you have space and time. Mm. And then there's another world called the intermediate world mm. where it's just subject to time, but not space. So when you go in your dreams, if you wake someone up, they still have this, they still share the same timeline, but they went in space in some illusory sense, in some hallucinate hallucination. Uh -huh. So it's not the same space. Uh-huh. So they're a part of the intermediate realm. And then he said there's some yogis, like super super religious people and enlightened people and so on, who can access the aveternal realm, aveternal, which harkens back to, I believe, Aquinas, but I'm not sure why he doesn't call it eternal. Uh -huh. Doesn't matter. The eternal realm, timeless. which is timeless and spaceless. Uh -huh. And he says that's where I don't even think God starts there, but God creates that which creates the rest. Uh -huh. And so those are some states you can get into. And he was saying that he even said, like, like, look, when I was studying with the yogis, the sadhus, sorry, the sadhus in the 1940s and 1950s or 60s, before there was heavy Western influence. We think in the West that there are certain people called enlightened people and so on. He's like, it is firstly the, the way the Vedics think about it or people who's, who are in that tradition is that you have to be a part of the bloodline. So it's not something like a, a belief that you can just adopt in the West. Mm -hmm. Then you're like, now let me take psychedelics. Let me get enlightened and, yeah. awakened and so on. It's actually only for a certain, it's, it's heavy, heavily racist in that sense. Like it's mm -hmm. only genetically yeah. for a certain type of people. Yeah. Secondly, it's, you have to have celibacy. 
Mm-hmm. As soon as you have sex, you cut it, cut off. Interesting. And, and that's it, that, that's what's interesting to me is that I was speaking to someone who's like, there are some people who like they don't like commitment of any sort. And they're the types of people who like to travel. Uh-huh. They're like desultory. They don't like to be in one place and, and they don't like commitment. And the, to me, I haven't found a case of that when I talk to the person one-on-one that doesn't come from some deep-seated insecurity rather than some, some openness that just loves everything and I'm a free spirit. Mm-hmm. When someone says I'm a free spirit, I, I'm so skeptical now. I think, no, you're hurt. You're so hurt that you cannot put your hand out to trust because you're afraid of being hurt again. <laughs> yes. So anyway, yeah. someone was saying, yeah, like, I just want to keep my doors open. Yeah. But this is a case where by keeping your doors, doors open, like being polyamorous and sleeping uh-huh. around, you've uh-huh. closed some doors. Yeah, totally. So interesting. Yeah. Is it the case that that keeping doors open closes other doors? Like, is it the case that closing some doors opens other doors? Yeah. It's not so simple. Like, let yeah. me just keep my doors open, my options open with jobs or with women or what, or spouses or with whatever it may be. Yeah. Maybe closing some significant doors. That feels like a millennial malady of the, the illusion of omnipossibility. Yeah. Just this idea that we can, we can have our cake and eat it too and hard choices don't have to be made. Commitment doesn't matter. Yeah. And, yeah. and I do think it leads you sort of towards consumerism and chronic dissatisfaction, uh-huh. like this bottomless soup of trying to sort of fill the void and, and replace kind of introspection and, and hard self-discovery with these sort of outer band-aids. And it's yeah. something I, I, I can't say I'm fully immune to. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, like I say hard. that they're hurt like as if I'm not hurt. It's like I'm same. super, oh, this present deliberation, you, I, I see this insistence in the, religious circles for being celibate before you get married. And we see that it's like, that's so backward. I think so much of our insecurities Mm. come from, at least for me, come from women from my past, Mm. like wanting them, them not wanting me. Mm -hmm. And so much hurt, so much of every single thing. Maybe even my drive to work is because inside I'm like, I want to be, I'm married. Why do I want that? Is is that sinful? Like, am I, I'm not sure. I love my wife more than anything else. I have stuff and I I dive into the psychology of, you know, as you know, I do, you know, sort of venture uh, as my former day job Mm -hmm, that I still mm -hmm. do a little bit. And a big thing for me is like, does the person have a chip on their shoulder? And some of the most right tail successful people I know, it's like you really like, you know, you have a few drinks with them, you get really deep and it's like the kind of super idealistic glossy pitch goes, well, I'm just trying to change the world by, you know, whatever. And it's like, it's like this girl rejected me and like, and I've been trying to- I need to make my mark. And and that's real. It's that the whole, you know, this Mark Zuckerberg social network, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. thing. that's a real thing. Mm -hmm. The sexual, Weinstein's actually told me he thinks, you know, sexual selection is a major driver of Mm -hmm. of human accomplishment. And of of course it is. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I think we're so unaware of our own emotion. Uh, sorry, motivations. We're unaware of our own motivations. It is. And how how do you? I mean, I feel like you, you you're amazing in that you have you have be ruthless. That's 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 how with yourself. Yeah, just just assume the worst. Just and then assume start the worst. from there. And, and rather than trying to do good, mm. I don't believe people anymore, or believe large the the larger people with money who say they're trying to do good. I'm sorry, I just don't, I don't believe either. you. It's not to say that it's I all. PR. I don't like. I don't. Yeah. It, there's there's <laughs> an element of that, or there's an element of of not being aware of their own motivations. And there's yes. also an element of me projecting. Yes. So there's there's also an element of me being jealous because they're in the ability, they have the capability of doing such good and I don't, yeah. so I want them to not be yeah. good. So I have to also weight it 
for that, like taking that, take that into account. But anyway, I, just, I, I tend to not believe them. And I think that it's much more helpful instead of saying, look at all the good I'm doing to think of, to, to say, look at all the bad that I'm minimizing. Yep. Like, and especially locally. Like, like I'm so good with my, that's why I love, like my wife is out there, the cameras aren't on her, but my, my wife is my, my rock in so many ways. Yeah. And, and she, I make her, ha I try, hopefully make her happy. And, and everything that I get, like when she's happy, I'm super happy. I'm, I, it's not that my happiness is tight. Like I'm, man, toe is probably similar for you. You're like, look, I live in a sick house. You live mm. in a sick house. <laughs> you live, you get to go in your cold plant <laughs> like a ridiculous yeah. yeah who are you yeah and then and then you get to do these and talk to yeah, interesting the, people the, the and film it and get ever. this cool guy behind the camera yeah here, jack's awesome who just yeah. who jack just listens yeah. and jack is like a philosopher there yeah and and you're just like man i'm so lucky so i feel like the same way i'm just like yeah. every cylinder is being banged on with toe i'm just to say this often i'm just a gym rat for toes yeah like that's what i am i'm not someone who is interested in music i'm not someone who does carpentry on the side i'm a gym rat for toes anything that. about toes and math and physics especially i just want to know i want to know every theory i just want to know that's all i do yeah and i love it but anyway i think about i want to make sure i minimize the harm that i do and yeah. I, I, I well and again like there's there's something self-congratulatory in me saying that so i need to be careful sure but, but the point is that I find that much more powerful than saying, let me look at all the good I can do. Yes. Yeah. Well, it, right. It's like, it's also harder. What want you're limiting that you're making the purview of what you're doing very humble. It's like, I'm, I'm showing up and doing a job and especially it, with what we're doing, it's, it's easy to get lofty and be like, you know, we're talking to all these cool people, but it's like, no, you're just, you're, do, you're doing a service yeah. and, and, and we're service workers, like sort of dressed up and like these, you know, and, and like speaking in these super highbrow, yeah, but, yeah. It, but it's like, it's well, all. Yeah. We're servers in a sense. We're just, just, just washing dishes and, and doing wait staff. And I, and some people say like, Oh man, you're, you're a truth seeker. Like I, I like them. I'm not a truth seeker. I, I'm I'm a coward. And there's only like, I, I'm just I'm a curious person. Yeah. So I study a bit, and I'm I'm interested in this and that, and I dabble. But I'm definitely if like there are some truths I don't want to know if yeah. they're the case. Yeah. I'm not a truth seeker. I, love, I think the truth is horrible. I, truth can be. It can be viscerating. I I love that you're saying that because you you you're sort of a role model to me in in some ways and. I have trouble. I, it's funny, like we, we were talking about like, you know, these super successful people and like, you know, how we view them or whatever. And it's like, I, I definitely have a two sides of me, like a just only truth, only truth. And like, if somebody's lying, like I, mm -hmm. I sort of like, I, like, I know what they're lying. Mm -hmm. And then, and then there's this other side that's like kind of commercial. And it's just like, I just want to like lead a good life. And those two things are not always in harmony yeah, yeah. and it's hard to have them in, in, in harmony. In fact, I think one can often lead to persecution historically and like not riches and, and family and, you know, a normal life. And then the other seems to at least nominally in the real world lead to like, a, you know, a, a, a pretty good place. And then the question is maybe the truth gets you something in the afterlife and then but then it's that sort of bad motivation if it's you're doing it to get something in the afterlife should it just be its own 
you know, sort of self-consistent no, virtue. I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe there's something good about that. Just just act good. Whatever it takes to do, act good. And, yeah. And do do what's right. And yeah. feel. And you'll start to feel good because of it. And don't worry too much about. Mm. Well, I I don't know. I, mm. I struggle with that as well. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting question. Yeah, I I do believe yeah. believe is interesting. We didn't even get to these. Oh man, I wanted to do that to show yeah. you some of these paradoxes. So that's something else I'm interested in. Is yeah. Paradoxes. Yeah. So I'll give you a couple of paradoxes now. Yes. So let's see. There's the there's there's a paradox that says if you believe yourself to be consistent and accurate, like mm. a rational person, yeah, you automatically become inconsistent. So there's Smolian's. I wanted to show you doxastic logic. It's oh, super wow. interesting. Yeah. I have three minutes. We'll do it in Toronto. Yeah, we'll do. Yeah, yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll do. We'll do another I'll time. Remember. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be fun. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Kurt. Yeah, man, that's a long time. Yeah, this is geez, awesome. there's like so much more we could have talked about. I know, I know. We can go forever. The podcast is now concluded. Thank you for watching. If you haven't subscribed or clicked that like button, now would be a great time to do so, as each subscribe and like helps YouTube push this content to more people. You should also know that there's a remarkably active Discord and subreddit for Theories of Everything, where people explicate toes, disagree respectfully about theories, and build as a community our own toes. Links to both are in the description. Also, I recently found out that external links count plenty toward the algorithm, which means that when you share on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, etc., it shows YouTube that people are talking about this outside of YouTube, which in turn greatly aids the distribution on YouTube as well. Last but not least, you should know that this podcast is on iTunes, it's on Spotify, it's on every one of the audio platforms. Just type in theories of everything and you'll find it. Often I gain from re-watching lectures and podcasts, and I read that in the comments, hey, toll listeners also gain from replaying. So how about instead re-listening on those platforms? iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whichever podcast catcher you use. If you'd like to support more conversations like this, then do consider visiting patreon.com slash kurtjimungle and donating with whatever you like. Again, it's support from the sponsors and you that allow me to work on Toe full-time. You get early access to ad-free audio episodes there as well. For instance, this episode was released a few days earlier. Every dollar helps far more than you think. Either way, your viewership is generosity enough.